Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast. More information at dandelionenergy.com. This is Boston Public Radio. We're on tape today, replaying some of our favorite conversations. We kick things off with behavioral economist and Harvard Business School's Michael Norton, who joined us for his recurring segment where he explains us to ourselves. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie And Here with us in Studio 3 is behavioral economist Michael Norton, who joins us every month to explain us to ourselves. Now, I'm going to try to explain what I think he is talking about, and then he will ridicule me and explain it himself. <laughs> Today, I think it's a look at how we, wrong, consumer, wrong. No, no, no. how we consumers like to feel like we're in the know and have access to products or services that convey, let's say, a sense of exclusivity and how businesses are tapping in. Before there was social media, that could mean knowing about, uh, I don't know, that great tailor who had inconspicuous shop underneath the subway who took only clients on referral and in turn got customers by word of mouth. Today it's having the Starbucks secret menu app that will get you access to the dirty chai latte or knowing what it takes to get that order of animal fries, for example, from the famous In-N-Out Burger secret menu. Groucho famously said, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. In 2019, you might say, I don't want a side of animal fries that are readily available to everyone else. Michael Norton is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. His latest book is Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. He's also the co-host of the podcast Talking Green, which explores the psychological forces that drive attitudes and decisions around money and investing. Michael, hello. How close was I? That was pretty good. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, excellent. I feel good about that. Well, I didn't even know that Starbucks had a secret menu app, so I guess <laughs> well, I'm Talk really about not being in the inside. <laughs> or or In-N-Out Burger's secret menu. So, so okay, would you want to start with Starbucks? I mean, what, what's going on there? So there, so this is research led by our doctoral student, Daphna Gore, um, at HBS. And she had the original observation that, which is a really funny one, which is that the they'll be on the menu at some restaurants printed on the menu, secret burger. <laughs> which is really weird because the secret shouldn't be printed and available for everybody to see. And so her initial idea was just the word secret somehow makes it you know, if I said this is a burger and you eat it, if it is a secret burger, that you might actually enjoy it more. But then from there, really went into all of these hidden menu items that many, many retailers have where if you know, then you can order X, Y, and Z. But if you don't, you have absolutely no idea that they even exist. And the question is, why would retailers do that, right? Why don't they just say what they have and then we can all order the same thing? What's the thing? answer? It seems like when consumers feel like they're in the know... It makes them more likely to go, more likely to buy. And this is the weird one, more likely to tell other people about the place. Because they want to brag about the fact that they have some inside knowledge? Is yeah. that the theory? Which is crazy, right? Because the whole point of a secret is that nobody nobody knows it except for you. But if nobody knows it except for you, then you can't get credit for having the secret. So they have to figure out how many people they should tell. Because they don't want to tell everyone because then their information is useless. So they want to tell like a couple of important people to signal how special and fancy they are. Can you? We're going to take calls on this in a few minutes and see if you uh, you subscribe to the notion being advanced by Michael Norton and his colleagues. How do you test this? What kind of research did you do to be able to conclude what you concluded? So one of the um, uh, tests that we did was actually on the Harvard campus, and we worked with uh, one of the groups that does tours of the Harvard campus. And they agreed to do some research with us. So the way it worked was some with some tour groups that came, they would just say to them, 
here's the tour, something, something. And then on, with other tour groups, they would say, by the way, um, on this tour today, we're going to see some secret things that we don't usually show people. <laughs> and then the trick was, though, they showed everyone the exact same stuff. Oh. <laughs> right. So it was just some people they said, hey, I don't I know, if this. know about this, but this building over here, you know, what it was built in 16, <laughs> oh. whatever it was, it wasn't really a secret. But at the end, we asked, of course, how how was the tour? Was it interesting? Was it? And people said that secret tour was was pretty good. So we can see <laughs> the feeling of discovery of secret, is, and you can feel it in yourself if you think about how interesting it would be if someone said, it kind of whispers to you. I don't know if you know this, but let me tell you a little something about some building, <laughs> whatever it is. It feels more interesting than just saying this is this building. When you say in your research, you use the term pseudo secret. Pseudo secret means not really a secret, even though they want you to think that you're in are in on a secret. Is that what is that what it means? Exactly. Okay, give us more examples. So, uh, can I give an example? Yeah, sure. Which I, I know you're going to think this is made up, but this is totally true, and it relates to you did the in and out thing in your research. I went to Reno and Lake Tahoe for one time in my life. Get off the plane. Get to the uh, car rental place at like one in the morning because the plane was delayed and everybody's starving. And we're all saying, so where do we eat? And they say the only place open is In-N-Out Burger. Mm. And what do you think two separate people – I think it was Enterprise Auto. Two separate Enterprise Auto people said apart from each other, meaning they weren't overhearing the other when they recommended In-N-Out Burger. What do you think they said? Got to get the secret burger. You got to get the secret <laughs> or the secret for whatever the secret was. They literally almost like they were working for In-N-Out Burger yeah. to enti- and and I am telling you on my honor, we drove right down the street because it was the only place open. Exactly as your subjects describe, I looked at the menu. Whatever it is they told us was a secret was not on the menu. Mm-hmm. I was almost too nervous to order it because <laughs> I was afraid that they were going to say, what? What are you talking about? And so whatever it was, animal fry, something, whatever it is, I said timidly, and this is totally true, and I'd also li- I'd like an, <laughs> an order of animal fries, and there was a knowing nod uh. from the woman or man at the, at the drive through lane. And I felt like a million bucks. And I have told everybody about it in the intervening Wait years. A minute. So, what were the animal fries? I it was covered in some horrible gravy or some crap or whatever it, it was. It wasn't a secret burger? Oh, there is Arjuna's from California. Secret sauce and two slices of what? American cheese. Thank you. It sounds like you've had a few, Arjun. But, the bottom, <laughs> but, the, but that's exactly what you're talking about, right? I felt like I was an insider. I was some sort of exclusivity, but I wanted to share it with other people. Give us another example. And you also can now, whenever anyone brings up in an outburger for the Tell rest the story. of your life, you can, you can say, I don't, I don't know if you know this. But <laughs> exactly. This burger. And if they know, you bonded over it. And if they don't, you get to be awesome because you knew it. And over and over again, we keep seeing that on menus. So, so there's the menu version where it says secret, secret something or other. Then there's the there's no, it's not on the menu at all, and you have to know about it. Both of those are really attractive to people. So uh, we we see like Starbucks has secret items. Some retailers have them that come and go. So they'll have like a there's a secret thing this month, and then the next month it won't be secret. So you have to keep up with the secret. You know you you can't just know it and it lasts forever. And to really know the secret, you have to kind of. Keep changing your information. Okay, I, I, I'm a little confused. How do I want to know what the secrets are at Starbucks? And I'm going to go and and find. I mean, is it on the website? I is it? I can't tell you. <laughs> That's a secret. They'll sue me. 
By the way, Arjun just wrote us a note and said, true insiders know it's all about the large Neapolitan milkshake at In-N-Out and a flying Dutchman, whatever that is. But, you know, can we explore this for one more minute before we take a break and take calls at 877-301-8970 and what your experience is with pseudo-secrets and if you have the same reaction. You know, on some level, when I asked you before, when you you let in on the secret, why do you want to share with people? Part of it is, you said I was right, part of it is... You want to let people know, by the way, I'm in on a secret. But also part of it's to assuage guilt because at times I've found when you know a secret, there's a part of you that says, I feel like I'm unfairly in on something that everybody else should have a shot to. So it's in part to assuage your guilt. Is that true or is that? That definitely happens as well. And even think about secrets in general in in life. You know, when someone tells you something and they say, can you please not tell anyone? We, we definitely don't want to tell anyone, but also part of us really wants to tell somebody, right? So we have this funny thing with secrets where we want them kept secret, and at the same time, we can't wait to tell people about them. Like the Freudian slips and all sorts of these phrases we have like this are our desire to disclose coming out of us whether we can help it or not. I think with brands and things like that, sometimes it slips out, but sometimes we're, we're really negotiating social relationships in, in some way, right? So I'm deciding... Who should I give my secret information to? Are you worth my secret information? Or should, with you, should I keep it to myself and only give it to that guy instead? You know, one last thing, for at least for me, before we take a break and again take calls, is it seems to me, I'm trying to think, this also applies in normal non-commercial transactions, right? Non-consumer transactions, where you feel one of the ways to draw someone closer to you or feel good about you is, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I mean, that's right. part of the, it's yeah. a variation on a theme, right? Absolutely. If you feel, if you've ever had the experience of a coworker, this, this happens, a coworker finds out that, that she's pregnant and then there's the decision of who, who gets to know yeah. when. And if you are one of the first people, you that's feel right. really, really yeah, close, right? Because it's such a, it's trust and it's trust that you won't share it because, you know, she's shared it with you and it feels really, really great. And it's truly a sign of, of trust and if you tell anyone, there goes that friendship, right? So secrets definitely signal that we're close. And then if we violate them, we can be really far. And for some reason, we apply the exact same logic to Starbucks that we do to our <laughs> friend telling, you know, in, in the same way we think, oh, good, I'm really in on it now. I feel close now. Yeah, let me tell you, the, just speaking for myself, not Marjorie, the only secret that would matter more to me personally than having a coworker trust me enough to say that she was pregnant is knowing that they're animal fries at in and out <laughs> in and out. I mean, that's the only thing that would be more meaningful to yeah. me is a, you can understand. Yeah. You said right? congratulations <laughs> on the baby. Do you have any secrets <laughs> on the menu? Our number okay. is 877-301-8970. We're talking to Michael Norton about his latest research, which looks, which looks at how businesses are manufacturing the sense of exclus- exclusivity, I should say, for uh, us customers. We're going to open the lines and take your calls on this, these pseudo-secrets at Starbucks and In-N-Out Burger and in real life. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, 
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. Now it's your turn. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Harvard Business School's Michael Norton about his research that looks at how we respond to brands and services that use so-called pseudo-secrets to get us hooked, things like apps that get us access to so-called secret menus. And while these constructions give us a sense of exclusivity, the fact that they're also in plain sight might allay the guilt we would normally feel about excluding others at least time. So we're taking your calls, 877-301-897. There are a million questions. Are you someone who is hooked on so-called secret consumer culture? Are you a practitioner of old school word of mouth? Do you see this as a brilliant marketing strategy? And more broadly, do you like the notion of exclusivity? Does it give you a sense of power or guilt for excluding others? 877-301-897. Uh, 8970. Let's start with Tina and Hudson. You're on with Michael Norton from Harvard Business School. Hi, Tina. Hi. How are you, everybody? Excellent. Great. Thank you for calling. I am interested in why, what with the, the um, culture, is that I live over a speakeasy. It's called Less Than Greater Than in Hudson, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. And nobody knows where it is. They come in the back parking lot when I park, asking me where it is. And, and there's several of them. I know that there's one in Worcester. Um, and people just just don't know where it is, but they go anyway. Because they think it's really cool that it's a secret doorway? It, it's actually inside of an ice cream shop, so you'd never find it. And people just search around to to find it. And it is it is worth it, and it is worth the wait, and it's fabulous. But there's no sign. It looks like a cobbler shop. Um, and there's no anything. And people people love it. They, they feel exclusive it's, it, when they do find it. Uh, you're nodding in agreement as Tina's speaking there, Michael Norton. Yeah, we see so many examples of a, and and I'm sure other listeners will have them of a. Yeah, there's there's this like, Italian restaurant. The the thing is, you gotta go. It looks like just it's a grocery store, but then if you go in the back, then there's this door, and then you go through the door, and then there's a. Some restaurants have like a really elaborate. There's a phone booth outside, and you have to dial a certain <laughs> number, and then it opens the door, and you can go in. So these are. If you think about customer service, you typically would think you should have very clear signage. You should show everyone where everything is. That's the whole point of it. But there's this other competing element, which is discovery. And I think the feeling, and we can think of it, the feeling that we have when we discover things is really fantastic. And this is one way, even though we we kind of know that everyone has access to it, we still have the feeling that we're discovering something. Well, you know, it's a good example. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's wildly expensive, but it's always the top 10 restaurants in town by South Station. That Japanese uh, Oya or whatever I think oh, it's yeah. called. Oh, yeah. There's, you, it's almost impossible. But you know what I thought where Tina, thanks for the call. You know what I thought Tina was going, which I think is another example of what she's talking about, you're talking about, are pop-up stores. Is like you really feel when someone tells you that there's a pop-up, whatever it is, in your neighborhood, you feel like, well, I didn't know it before, which probably means most other people don't know it before, which is yet another reason to go see it, even if you're not interested in what it is that they're selling. You know, you Pop, know? Pop-up stores are, are f- fantastic because they have the secret element and the scarcity element. So that just when you get both of those on us at the same time, you know, limited time only. Quick, we got to get out. Exactly. And get, I don't know what it is, but we got to get it. Pop up stores have both. Nobody knows, and it's going to close. We got to go right now. We got to figure it out. You're a big restaurant guy, Jim. Um, Michael just emailed and said, like Craigie on Main. I assume he means that they have hamburgers for only part of the day. Is that a secret? Well, no, it's not a secret. They're only. I think they only make eighteen. Now they have. They're at timeout or whatever in the Fenway. So you have. Very, but there are only eighteen. You have to only go in the bar. You got to know that. You got to know that. That's a wonderful one, actually. You have to know to get there early, 
because once they've sold 18, I think it's 18, they're done for the... That's another perfect example, though, Ald- right? Alden Harlow also has a secret Is that so? And every time you go, they say, we, we ran out. Really? <laughs> I've never been able to That was a great email. I that's go, a wonderful point. 11 in the morning, and we're already out of those. <laughs> By the way, it's one of the... <laughs> great- it's, it's so interesting that it's gone. It's a secret, and it's gone. That does something really interesting to so us. So people must get there at 9 o'clock to have I don't, a cheeseburger? I, I guess so. <laughs> no, but it's... What that guy, what's the name of the guy who just Michael, said? Michael, Michael. That is such a perfect... I think example of your thing you feel you knew the inside dope that you had they only serve it in the bar that they're only 18 or whatever it is 16 18 whatever and when you've done it you feel like you've really achieved and when you're going with dinner partners and you say to the other people by the way we got to get there early because they're only 18 there's a it is that feeling that you're just, it's pathetic, and actually. You can show it, off with the waiter, you know, exactly. that you know the we knew. stuff, and you look really cool now. And, mm-hmm. Bob and Gloucester, thank you for calling. Hey, Bob. Oh, hi. Yes, um, in Chinese restaurants, some of them, rarely, but some of them have a what's called a Chinese menu. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that? Oh, yeah. And, uh, it's, okay. No, but and explain it to the listeners. Go ahead. I'm sorry? Explain yeah. what you mean uh, by to, to the listeners. Okay, it's a, it's actually a Chinese menu. It's written in Chinese, and at first I think it's the same. It's not. It's, the food is uh, cooked differently, and uh, I was with a Chinese friend years ago. I'm not sure whether it's, and you'd probably know whether it's more in infection. But anyway, it uh, it was horrible. <laughs> I've never had chicken the same. I mean, I can still taste it right now. It's just horrible. Well, I wouldn't say horrible. It's different. It is. It's something that American palates are not used to. But for, Bob, thanks for the call. Almost every restaurant in Chinatown, if you're a regular or you're from that community, you know that there's a separate menu that's not the stuff on the menu. But isn't there also the secret code word for getting liquor after hours at a lot of iced restaurants tea, in Chinatown? Yeah. Whatever you're supposed was, to ask yeah. for iced tea and you wind up with a vodka martini or something? <laughs> when you're 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, when you're 12 years old. I've never done it by you myself. Know but... I, you know, I am even telling the stories. I am feeling the excitement yeah. of being in on I the secret, which almost everybody said. What, yeah. what is that? I mean, what is that? It's... We we love secret, secret. Inf- There's a very cool study by a, a psychologist named Leif Van Boven. They give people government documents to read. They're like reports about something, something. And they basically either just, they, they stamp them top secret or not. <laughs> and then people read these documents. At the end they say, oh, you know, how much interesting information was there? And when it's stamped top secret, people say it was fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I just learned so much about whatever the topic was. Because this feeling of, you know, yeah, think they... of a top secret thing and you get to open it and look inside. It just feels so interesting compared to business as usual. You know what I feel like such a dope about, by the way, is the the the, the, the was it a caller or an emailer who mentioned, was it a, a caller who mentioned, you know, the, the uh, a restaurant without a sign kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I went to Oya, plus you remember Bobby Constantino was yes, Chet's friend? Yes, who uh, Who was, by the way, the cheese king. As they, he's in the cheese hall of fame in San Francisco, I should say. For inventing or bringing, importing some cheese, you his think that son would be in Wisconsin. That's his so son, it's in San Francisco. His son is a very successful restaurant tourism in, in New York City, and I went to one of his kids' really hot restaurants, West Village. No sign, and like a moron, I said to Bobby, and I'm sure I said to the people, the wait staff at, oh yeah, why don't you have a sign so the people would know? But it is exactly what your research says. People obviously can figure it out. And you feel like you're somebody special, even though you're not. There's a trend also in um, in uh, expensive clothing out of my out of my price range, given my wardrobe. But 
uh, we we tend to think of of you know luxury. clothing as having logos on it you mm-hmm. think of the ralph lauren logo with mm-hmm. the horse and the whatever it was Polo. the lacoste as well with yeah. the alligator the trend now is for really expensive clothing to never have any logos but i can still recognize that you're wearing the expensive t-shirt right so mark zuckerberg's great t-shirt they're like 300 dollars a piece or something <laughs> like are? that something crazy like that and and i don't i wouldn't recognize it but if we're in the know we're, it's a little bit of a secret that we're sharing right because you look like you're wearing a t-shirt but we know actually what you're wearing so is there a practice well, let's get back to the coals in a second is there a practitioner of this pseudo secret art in business that is seen as the top of the game the one who is really elevated to an art form and sort of built its brand, a term I hate, on this concept? One of the, um, uh, it's now closed, but the restaurant El Bulli that was outside of Barcelona in oh. Spain, it was the number one restaurant uh, for, uh, I think, four years in a row. Uh, Ferran Adria is the chef. He's a brilliant guy. And the restaurant is was located in the mountains with these winding roads, and there were no signs and everything. And the, it worked like a dis- – when you came and saw it, it was a discovery. Uh-huh. And so he sort of masterminded this whole journey through discovery and no signs and everything like that. And it's a very powerful experience. Now, again, customer- When you finally find it, you mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Customer service says clear signage, full information. <laughs> you know, I mean, we know that that's yeah. a good thing. But there's this other thing that we really like to have where when people design these secrets for us, even when we know That's they're great. doing it, it still feels more interesting. Let's go to Linda, Linda. from Salem. Thank you for calling, Linda. Hi. Uh, remember the old Joe Tetris back 50-plus years ago had no signage out on that little restaurant in the North End. I was the there, but I don't remember. Is that so? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, back in the – I'm going back to the oh, – I think the first time I was in there was – mid to late 60s, and uh, there was no signage. You didn't even know it was a restaurant. So did you feel when you went there sort of special because you knew that it was where it was? Of course you did. Of course you didn't. If uh, you were with somebody who was really special, you were served at the back of the restaurant, and uh, the uh, Coca-Cola bottles came out with the fresh uh, homemade wine. That's great. That's great. And here in Beverly, we have a place called Back Alley Bacon. Every Wednesday from 530 until there's no more food, up Central Street, you do, no signs, just, just a little red light is on. You press the button. You give them the uh, code for the day. Like I think today is game on. Uh, and for ten dollars to fifteen dollars, they will uh, hand you, or the um, guy with the pig mask will come to the door, and you give him the cash, and he'll hand you a delicious uh, meal made out of pork of some sort. You have no idea what you're getting. Lo- so you That's need a password incredible. kind of thing. That is brilliant. That's incredible. That is a great. Linda, gimmick. that was a great couple of stories. And Thanks you, for you, sharing. If it. you think about that one, how many retailers or restaurants could you say their specific hours of business? You just you don't know. You're they no, open, they close them, the but these secret ones, you say, "Oh, here's the thing. It's only Tuesday. It's only from nine to something like. And you got to do this thing." So we are we're they're more top of mind as well. And so when you're thinking, where should we go to eat? These are the ones that come to your mind because they're more interesting. Whereas ones that are open all the time and the menu's up, you know, there's a million of those. Who cares? Why would we go? 
So is this been this has been happening for a long time? Well, I mean, she meant Joe Tetchy thing is like age old. She said it was like a half century ago. This story. So this is something people in the industry knew, obviously, and we're just becoming aware you know, of it. Not you, but Marjorie and me. Okay. This isn't exactly the same. I'm but way I know, ahead of you. <laughs> I know there's lots of places that you can shop at. Like if you, you can be in the rewards club or the insiders club, and then you get. Uh, admitted to special sales, and you get them you know, a day before somebody else does, or something. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, but it's a little bit. It's similar. interesting. It's a great question, actually, because there's so you can think of scarcity, which is there's there's not much of it. Like the pop up store is going to go away. There's exclusivity, which is sort of the only some people can have access to it, and then there's secrecy. And sometimes exclusivity can be, you know, if you take a million flights, you can be in the Diamond Club for whatever Delta might be. But you got to take a million flights. Secrets are funny because anyone immediately can have access to it. It's not exclusive in that sense. Yeah. It's just it feels very exclusive because it's information that's scarce rather than I got to spend a lot of money. And that's partly why they're so exciting because they're accessible to all of us. So any of us can get in on the secret. We're not allowed into the Delta Fancy Lounge just because we know some password, right? we got to fly all the flights before we can get in. Laurie and Ken, you're on with Michael Norton from Harvard Business School. We're talking about the use of pseudo-secrets, as he calls them, in marketing and selling stuff to us. Hi, Laurie. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I have this funny story. Like, years ago, the restaurants aren't even open anymore. The Chicken House down in Rockville in Middleborough. Yep. When you were, after you finished your meal... If the waitress would come up and say, how was everything? Did you have enough to eat? If you said no, they'd bring you another meal. (laughs) (laughs) For no charge. For no charge. Wow. I went with a friend. That's why they're out of business. (laughs) And, I mean, we had had, like a nice shrimp dinner and everything. And he's like, just say no and they'll bring you more. (laughs) Wow. Boy, I'm sorry I missed that place. they're They're not there anymore. Yeah, well, well, once the secret got out. It was a good meal, too. (laughs) That's a great story, Lori. Thanks for sharing it with us. 877-301-8970. So is there a part of life, almost all the research you do has an applicability beyond the narrow world in which the research, you know what I mean? So how does this, in our everyday lives, what's the applicability of this? I think. Or the value of this or something. The idea of what. What constitutes a secret, I think, is just just really interesting. So when, when I have secret information, what does that even mean? Who am I going to tell? Who am I not going to tell? It's a lot of what we do, actually. So if, if you think of someone in your life, you can think of things that only you know about them. Mm-hmm. So we have millions of secrets. We don't feel like that way, but we actually have millions of secrets running around in our head. And so the managing those, how do we use them? Who do we tell? How do we tell them? to me, is just a very interesting process. And then the idea that it plays out in our behavior with our money as well, I think, is another interesting You angle. know, it, it, but it seems to me, I'm trying to think as we've had this discussion, it, it's not just access to a secret. It's a very, for me, it's, it's fooling yourself into believing that you're part of an exclusive circle, right. even if it's not a, a sort know. of what you're you were describing before. By the way, only American Express cardholders are able to buy tickets oh, yeah. to this play in advance. Only the three million American Express cardholders <laughs> right. in Greater Boston or something. But you do feel, I'm embarrassed to admit, that you're in something special. Secrets say somehow, if you entrust me with a secret, again, you've, you've told me that I'm important and special. 
because only special people get to hear secret, like the coworker who who's having a baby. Only special people get to hear the secret early on. And so when retailers do it as well, we have that same feeling of, oh, I guess I'm kind of a, I didn't realize it, but I guess I'm a big deal because I'm worthy of receiving <laughs> I'm this, worthy. this information. And they must really think very highly of me for me to know that. You know, a couple of people have emailed the No Name Restaurant, which is down in the Oh, of course. Yeah. Does that qualify? I mean, I don't, I Absolutely. don't know the history of why it was the you No Name Restaurant. You ever been there? It's a yes, fish joint. I have. And there is no sign. Is there? Or, I just is, thought it was a gimmick. Sure, actually, yeah. But that, that's so some menus will say secret burger on it. Some restaurants, you know, could say no name. And it's not, it's clearly not a secret. There's a sign that says that, but it still feels a little bit more like a secret yeah. than if it just had a regular restaurant name, right? It's one of the first restaurants I went to when we went to, uh, we, I moved to Boston. Elias, you're in Dorchester. You're on with Michael Norton. Hey, guys. How you doing? Great. Yeah. Um, so here uh, in Boston, there's a, uh, I don't know if you guys know of the store called Bodega. Where? Um, they're, they're, it's like right off of Mass Ave. Um, and uh, they pretty much sell like exclusive uh, sneakers and uh, hats and jackets and clothes. Um, but their facade is like a corner store bodega. So there's no signage. Um, and it's only like word of mouth. But they've been around for years. Oh. Really? Um, but it's like you walk in and it looks like you're in a corner store. You know, you buy your gum, your, your, your juice and stuff. But there's like a... Uh, 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 what do you call it? A vending machine door that slides to the side. You go to the back and oh. there's like the store. Amazing. But you never know what they have to, you never know what they have in the store until you go to the store as well. So they do a good job of like having the secrecy, exclusivity, and like that sense of discovery and like they do it well. I think that that's why they've been around for like years. Okay, brilliant. hold on, hold on. Where on I Mass just Googled Ave? it. I just looked it up. You did? Did you yeah. find it? Yeah, I did. Do you have the address? Well, I will give it to you in a minute. I just put my phone down. <laughs> yeah. That is fat. That is, I never even heard of that. That is a <laughs> great example. Elias, thanks for uh, sharing that with us. We're going to keep taking calls for a couple of minutes, but you actually have to go teach a class or do something, kind right? Kind of a big deal, yeah. It is a big deal. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Michael, thank you. We're going to try to carry always. it on without you, Michael. It's not going to be easy. We'll say good things about you in a minute. Michael Norton, it's great to see you. We'll see you next month. Thank you very much. Our number is 877-301-8970 because Marjorie and I are really into this. Our mouths are like open with surprise or something. Are you going to give us the address we'll for do the place? I will in a minute. I'll give, I don't want to do a, like a, an advertisement. Just look it up. It's Bodega Boston, and it comes up uh, right away. Okay. Sandy in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Sandy, hi. How are you, Jim and Marjorie? We're Excellent. great. Thank you. Great. So um, there are a few little secret candy shops down on Nantucket, and it's the biggest highlight of my kids' annual vacation to um, go to this little secret candy shop. Uh, One used to be in Town Pool, but they've moved um, off Main Street to Easy Street. But if you went into Town Pool, it was just a clothing shop, and if you knew where to go, tiny little stairway in the back of the store, you'd go down the stairs and it was the best candy store in the world. Now and, there's another one that's still there. Wait, before you go, before um, you continue though, and do you, do the kids who are so excited about it, who you're describing, think they're being let in on a secret that other people don't know? Oh, absolutely! Because every year we bring a different friend, and it's literally the highlight of the trip to that say like, great. "Oh, we're going to go to this candy store," and they bring their friends, and they're like, "We're in like a clothing shop," and you know. You go down the little secret passageway, you go behind, and the other one, you go behind the door. And there's, you know, really good little penny candies, um, which you don't get to see too much anymore either. So that's, it kind of goes to the secret and to the scarcity. Um, I love it. So, 
Thank you, Sandy. Yeah, by the way, oh, everybody like... who is cold has been excited by this. We have an outlier who thinks oh. it's not all uh, uh, upside, and maybe she's right. Bernice, here in Cambridge. You're on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bernice. Hi, Bernice. Hi. 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 Can you hear me? Yeah, we yeah. do. Sorry. Hi. Okay. Um, I would like the names of all of these places so that I can never patronize them. <laughs> Why is that? that? Well, rather than making me feel special, as your expert contends, it makes me feel duped and manipulated. And I'm not interested in their latest marketing plan. But Bernice, know? isn't all advertising... I mean, I, by the way, I... I think you may have some merit. It is manipulation, but isn't all advertising manipulation just different kinds? Well, certainly, but I think that it's more straightforward than this. And I don't enjoy restaurants, actually, that you have to go down a dark street and there's no sign on the door and all the rest of that. It just, um, you know, there are other ways to feel special. Well, Bernice, you said it well. I guess I like to be manipulated. What can I tell you? I, I, I find this great. But I hear your point. Thanks for the call. Robert says, I don't remember this, but he says, how about going way back to the Ovaltine secret decoder ring? You didn't know the special message unless you decode it with the ring. Do you remember that? No. No, neither What was it called I. again? What is the it? Ovaltine secret decoder ring. Um, Ovaltine was the worst. Did you drink that when you were a kid? No. That was like, it was like literally drinking those, drinking those PFASs that, uh, that was the, Heather that was, was the throwing. powder chocolate milk? Yeah, and it's sort of like hot chocolate, but not really. It's just, it's sort of, it's really, it's whatever. Michael Norton is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. His latest book is Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Coming up, we talk to author Margot Lee Shalley, the author of Hidden Figures, the story of the black women who changed American history. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're on tape today, replaying some of our favorite discussions, which includes the one we had with writer Margot Lee Shatterley. She's the author of Hidden Figures, which was also adapted into a blockbuster film. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we all know that behind every great man is a great woman. Do we know who the great women are behind the great men? like Neil Armstrong and John Glenn and others. That's the subject of this great new book, Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. We're joined by the author of this great book, Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shetterly. Margot, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We're glad to so, have you. So tell, tell us about these, these hidden figures, because I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know Nor there did were I. any such figures. So who are you talking about? Well, um, so what we're talking about um, are women, professional mathematicians, um, African-American, who started working in my hometown, Hampton, Virginia, um, during World War II at a place that was called the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, but was really the kernel of what we now know as NASA. And what were these women doing there? What were they doing? 
What they were doing is that they were making the airplanes that we take for granted today um, as being safe and efficient and, um, you know, getting us from place to place on time the way we want. They were doing the hard work to make that come about. So even though we think of NASA as a space agency, really NASA started out with airplanes. And so these women were doing what we rely on electronic calculators to do today, which is processing tons and tons of information so that engineers can make decisions about how to develop better airplanes. They were called computers before they were computers, meaning they were computing, correct? That is correct. So a computer, just just so we're clear, I mean, we think of the, these, these objects on our desktop today as computers. A computer was a job category. It was mm-hmm. just somebody whose job it was to compute yeah. or do math. Yeah. That, that's what they were. So what's so surprising to me about this is not just the sexism that these were all women mathematicians, but the racism that they were women mathematicians because Jim Crow was still in – the Jim Crow laws were still there. As you point out, we had the colored bathrooms and the white bathrooms and all this stuff. So how did this come about that, the, that these African-American women – you know, with two strikes against him, we're getting these jobs. It's a great question. And the answer to that, like the answer to so many things that we take for granted today, was World War II. Um, So the men were off to fight. You know, a lot of those men were mathematicians. At the same time, you know, there was an escalating demand for better aircraft and the research that make that. So, um, you know, they were hiring all the women they could find, uh, essentially, to do this work um, there in Hampton, Virginia. And uh, But really, it was thanks to a gentleman whose name a lot of people have forgotten, whose name is A. Philip Randolph. He was um, a, a pioneering civil rights leader, labor, labor leader, um, you know, and he was the one who really challenged then-President Roosevelt and forced him to open, to integrate um, the federal workforce, the civil service, and the defense industry. I mean, and then for African-Americans, but, you know, also... For Mexican-Americans, for Jews, for many people who found it hard to find those war jobs, which were, you know, like for these women, the kind of jobs that changed your life and changed your family's prospects. Yeah, but from having – I've only gotten through about 100 pages of your book, which we just got it. But, well, I don't want people to leave with a – listen with the notion that, you know, outside was Jim Crow – inside was purity. I mean, you talk about wasn't lunchroom, colored computers sit here. And so while they were, quote, allowed to do this incredibly important work, uh, 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 they were not, I mean, they weren't treated in the way equals and incredibly competent people deserve to be treated. They they were not, you know, they did the same work as their white counterparts, but um, they were in a separate office, which was called the West Area Computing Office, though people knew them as the colored computers, which sounds like, you know, an iMac, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They had uh, segregated bathrooms and a segregated lunchroom. You Tell know? the story about what you know, John Glenn. Talk about names something that nobody's forgotten. John Glenn. Talk about how uh, John Glenn refers and describes the importance of and how he describes one of these women or girls, as he right. called it. This is just a great story about an incredible human. Go right. Ahead. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of their age, all of the women were called girls. girls you right. know, this is sort of the Mad Men era. Just, you know, think about that right there. Um, so John Glenn, who went down in history as an American hero for taking the first orbital flight into space, and this was a moment that really changed the balance of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Huge amount of work that went into that. You know, it was orders of magnitude more difficult than the first two flights for Gus Grissom and Alan Shepard, which were 
suborbital flights. You shoot the man up and he comes down in a big parabola. This is someone going all the way around the earth and then coming back, you know. Katherine Johnson, you know, African-American woman born in rural White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, um, working there at the Langley Laboratory. She had co-authored the report that laid out the math for that. And then, you know, in the lead up to this this big moment that was approaching in 1962, and this is really the sort of the, you know, the big moment in the movie. The movie Hidden Figures really focuses on that. John Glenn said, listen, you know, among these many pre-check lists and, you know, tests and, you know, verifications that we have, what I want is I want the girl to check the numbers. He said, listen, we've got this computer. The computer is doing all these equations and coming out with output. I want Katherine Johnson, the girl, to run these equations by hand. If she gets what the computer gets, I'm ready to go. Okay, we're going to hear a little bit about Katherine Johnson. Actually, we're going to play some sound from her and just from Obama talking about her in just a couple of seconds. But the book is Hid, uh, Hidden Figures, How Black Women Did the Math that Put Men on the Moon. And the voice you're hearing is from is Margot Lee Shutterlees, who's the person that wrote this book. So just give us a little bit about her uh, uh, childhood, because she was like a math prodigy from an early age. But getting an education was not exactly an easy thing for her. So tell us about her and her family. Right. So um, her parents were also exceptional people. You know, she says that her dad, who wasn't educated, you know, was nonetheless brilliant, had the same kind of talent for math. Somebody who could look at a tree and tell you how many board feet of lumber you'd get out of it, you know. So Catherine was somebody who, you know, clearly talented from the beginning. She counted steps, dishes, stars in the sky. Um, And her parents were, were very much committed to making sure that she and her three siblings were were educated, that they basically got the best education that their family could give them. So they went, they lived in rural White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, which was also segregated at the time. And uh, there was a, a school in the town that went through sixth grade for black students, Negro students, as they were called then. So after that, um, they had to figure out something else. So what they did was they took their, their kids, all four of the kids, they went 125 miles away to West Virginia State Institute. It's now called West Virginia State uh, University. It's a historically black college, which maintained um, a, a school, a, you know, a K through 12 school um, for black children, you know, that was basically staffed by the, the people who worked there at the college. So uh, Catherine's father drove the kids 125 miles away, rented a house, um, her mom stayed there with the kids, and they enrolled in the school, you know. But this this is what you did. I mean, that that was what it took, so that's what you did. You just, know, I was just going to say, just to show what a genius she was, how old was she when she got out of college? Well, Katherine Johnson went to college when she was just 13 years old, and she graduated from college when she was 18. I mean, well, she's... Still she's, a cum laude. Exactly. Yeah. No, she's, she is... And she she's 98 years old now. She's she is still with us, fortunately, and um, not just a brilliant person, but a charming, charismatic, interesting, beautiful woman. And not just just to you, because at 97 years old, here is President Obama awarding the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Katherine Johnson. Here's Barack Obama. As an African-American woman, job options were limited, but she was eventually hired as one of several female mathematicians for the agency that would become NASA. Catherine calculated the flight path for America's first mission in space uh, and the path that put Neil Armstrong on the moon. 
So if you think your job is pressure-packed, <laughs> hers meant that forgetting to carry the one might send somebody floating <laughs> off into the solar system. What a great life. You know what this reminds me of? Sitting in the same chair as you, Margot, not so long ago, was Lisa Fisher and then Darlene Love, both of whom starred in 20 Feet from Stardom. Have you ever seen 20 Feet from Stardom? This is this great film about the backup singers to these huge stars. Yeah, we Rolling know all Stones. the stars, uh, uh, you know, the Stings and the Bruce Springsteens and the Rolling Stones, yeah. these African-American women, without whom none of this worked and you get the same perspective these are the people who made everything fly and work and they've been in the shadows for until you uncovered them it's really it's unbelievable yeah but i tell you what's really gives me a lot of hope about this is that this is not a story of one lonely black woman sitting right. alone you know in, right. in the corner you know the, there was a, a large cohort of black women they were part of a much larger cohort of women from all backgrounds so basically you know you look at the planes you look at the shape of the planes that we fly on today we take it for granted satellites in the sky you know all of these things that we take for granted and women you know and and not just at nasa you know at a, at a lot of different places mm -hmm. starting in world war ii a lot of this analytical work was done by women. So anybody who says that uh, women are not good at math, well, we have the categorical evidence that will refute any argument that you have. Okay, so everybody's goal when they're writing a book like you wrote Hidden Figures is you write the book and it's made into a movie. You didn't have that happen. You didn't write the book and it was made into a movie. <laughs> and as you were writing the book, the rights were bought. Here's a little bit from the trailer of this thing. It's coming out next month, right? Uh, it, it premieres on Christmas Day in limited markets and January 6th in the whole country. Here's a little piece of the trailer. You know what we're doing here? We're putting a human on top of a missile, shooting him into space that's never been done before. I need a mathematician that can look beyond the numbers. Math that doesn't yet exist. You have someone? Catherine's the gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. You're a computer at NASA. They let women handle that sort of... Yes, they let women do some things at NASA, Mr. Johnson. And it's not because we wear skirts. It's because we wear glasses. Are you happy with the film? I am. I mean, I, I, you know, as you're saying, like this idea that, you know, for a first-time author to get a book published no. um, is, you know, that, that alone would be a huge accomplishment and a huge um, source of just, you know, happiness. The idea that it's been made into a movie, and not just a movie, but a you know a big Hollywood movie with lots of support, big stars, a, a big stars, Kevin amazing. Costner, Kevin Costner. No, I mean it's just it's just I you know I don't even know I don't <laughs> you see know the look that I on have Margot's face <laughs> as she's sitting here. Go ahead. I don't know that I have the words to to just express that, except that these women deserve it. You do know, they know? They do they it. appreciate? Uh, first of all, all the ones you feature living or not all of them. Uh, they, they are not, no, uh, Catherine Johnson is, is the only does one. Does she that... appreciate what a big deal this was or does she, or she just see it as this is a job and it was important and I did it well. Does she get is, how big is, a deal? That is really, that is really her, uh, point of view. She's very modest and, and not just her, but you know, I really think a lot of these women, they grew up during the depression, you know, they, they were on the job in World War II you know, and I think there's a real kind of listen. You know, when when some when your country asks you, you show up. Yeah. You do whatever it is that you need to do for your family, and then you go home and and you have you know you have dinner with your family. But there's and no that's resentment it. that the Flyboys get all the praise and the women doing the work 
were just in the background? I, honestly, that was the expectation. You know, this was women's work. Mm-hmm. Um, black or white, this was women's work. It was valued as women's work. You know, the men did the engineering and the women did the math and the math was women's work. You know, mm-hmm. so we, we were blind to it until now. You know, we've got, I think, the kind of perspective and the sensibility to say, you know what? We need to go back and we need to thank those women for their service to our country. But you know what I can't get over is that back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, these men, what would be NASA, trusted women, never mind black women, that they had the confidence, which they obviously did. So how did that come about? It, it was it was like you're either, as Katherine Johnson said, you're either right or you're wrong. You know, I mean, this is like you show up, you do the work, and uh, you do it right the first time. You know, I mean, this is it's like that is that is what the expectation was. And that's what these women delivered. They were very good at math. They were valedictorians. You know, they were superb mathematicians. And their job path until this door opened was to become a teacher. That's what women did. And then all of a sudden, wow, you know, this I'm going to be a professional mathematician at one of the most elite scientific organizations on the planet. I mean, that is a pretty spectacular thing. When you had the premiere on Christmas Day, you going? Yeah, so actually it it opens in theaters on Christmas Day, but I'm going to the premiere this weekend. It happens on Saturday night in New York. Oh, (laughs) have you met the stars already? I've met them. I was on the set, yeah, for for one day during the film. How exciting is that? It was really exciting. They were all so wonderful people and have every single person has taken the story to heart oh yeah that's really I mean, we have so many authors in here most not most of them a significant number of whom are very happy with what is made of their work and they're very happy that they make money doing it too but some come in here and say i watched it once i can never look at it again it was such an unfaithful portrayal but you obviously feel this is faithful to the book and your work and your research yes yeah, I think the thing for me, you know, the book starts in 1943 and it goes through 1969, you know. So I think for me it was like, oh, my God, they're going to, like, right. take this tiny snippet of the history, right. but they're leaving out the war, you know. And the thing about it is, you know, a book and a movie, they're different media, you know. You have to make a movie that's going to keep people gripped and in their seats for two hours in the dark. And they've really done that. And they've done it in a way that is true to the spirit of these women, to the spirit of NASA, to the spirit of my hometown, you know, to the spirit of this, like, middle-class black community, which is, you know, kind of a revolutionary thing to see on film, just normal people going to work, you know, and that that's kind of a radical thing. Well, your book is a great thing. Yeah, We're congratulations. Really Boy, there so are a million much. people drooling out there who can't even get their books, and you know, a million rejections, and you got a book and a movie, so good for you. Uh, the book, again, I want to tell you, is The Hidden Figures, Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Woman, Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. We spoke with her just before the film adaptation of her book hit theaters. It turned out to be a blockbuster. Up next, former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice is here to talk about her new book. Keep her dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're playing some of our greatest hits today, which includes one we had with former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice. She joins us to talk about her new book. It's called Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Thank you very much for coming in, Ambassador. Let's start with probably the one of the toughest things, the things that you're most famous or notorious for, depending on your perspective. <laughs> um, after this, I read you became the Wright's favorite chew toy after uh, Benghazi and after you ended up going on five Sunday morning shows to explain what happened. And you write that you wound up with incorrect talking points from the intelligence agencies. How'd that happen? Well, I was asked to go on the five Sunday shows as a senior administration official. Uh, It was not what I planned to do that weekend. I'd actually planned to take my two kids to their first Big Ten football game at Ohio State. But... uh, I I, call, I answered the call, um, just at, at being a team player, as I typically am, um, and I utilized the information that was provided by the intelligence community. It was their best current assessment of what we knew that had happened in Benghazi a few days earlier when, tragically, uh, terrorists killed our ambassador, Chris Stevens, and three other Americans. That information was consistent with what I knew to be the information we had because I was reading the intelligence reports on a daily basis. When I gave that information, I was careful to say it was current, it could change, we're having an investigation, and we'll see. But that was the best information, and that's been validated by eight congressional investigations. What happened was, as is often the case, days down the road, the intelligence community collected new information which caused them to alter their assessment in a couple of respects. Ultimately, after months of, you know, further information, the thorough investigation, um, the talking points that I used that Sunday turned out to be wrong in one critical respect, and that was that there wasn't actually a demonstration outside of our facility in Benghazi. But my uh, mistake, so to speak, was to be the first one out there uh, speaking broadly on what had happened, and utilizing information that um, predictably proved uh, to be preliminary and ultimately was uh, altered. And so in the hothouse of a political campaign, a re-election campaign for President Obama, I was roundly accused by many, particularly Republicans in Congress and right-wing commentators, of being a liar and of uh, deliberately misleading the American people. Let's not uh, leave out your incompetent and untrustworthy, exactly. according to uh, Senator <laughs> Lindsey Graham. Can I, can, and not very bright, can I, according uh, to some others. Of all the stuff you wrote about this, which I was really interested in, because obviously it was a major moment not so long ago, my favorite line in your whole retelling of this are uh, three words, and tell us who said them. Where is Hillary? Who said where is Hillary? My mother. Exactly. Tell us <laughs> what, what that was all about. Well, it, interestingly... Um, my mother, who had very uh, recently had her fourth cancer surgery or fifth cancer surgery, I've lost count, and then subsequently a stroke, actually up here at Mass General. Oh, really? Uh, w- which treated her extraordinarily well, I will say, um, had uh, asked me to stop by on my way home from work, uh, which I happily did, just to check in on her. And um, She asked me what I was doing for the weekend. I said, I'm taking the kids to Ohio State, and I've also just agreed to go on the five Sunday shows. And she said, what? Why? Why you? Where's Hillary? Um, And I explained that I'd been told that she declined uh, and she was wiped out after a long emotional week of 
caring for families and, and uh, her personnel at the State Department after such a loss, um, and that I had agreed to do it reluctantly, but because, you know, I'd been asked and I didn't see a reason to say no. And her view was, I smell a rat. She had this intuition, or maybe based on experience, that this would go wrong and I would become a target. You know, there's one more element of this that uh, I'm not buying, if I, uh, if I may. You say that you had a conversation with a Fox News producer, and, and basically, I'm paraphrase, you say, in the book, obviously, you say, uh, uh, why did I become the target here? And Former this, Fox News producer. A former, okay. Yes. And this, this guy said to you, and obviously you'll correct me if I get a little bit of this wrong, uh, everybody needs a villain, they need a target, that sort of thing. Why not Jay Carney? Well, he isn't the, uh, the right guy. The you former know, you, White House you fit person. It. And then... He goes on to say, and and I think from your writing that you accepted it, that it had nothing to do with your gender or your race. I, I, I don't think I accepted it. I oh, acknowledged oh, fine. That, I acknowledged that that was his point of view. So do you accept it? I, you know, I think there are many factors that went into it. I think the fact that I was close to President Obama was probably the most important. I think the fact that I, as this producer said, gave them five different pieces of video that they could loop and uh, use to villainize me was a factor. And I think that who I am uh, is was also likely a factor as an African American woman. But I can't weigh the relative with an African American president. With they didn't African like American... that there was a black guy who was the leader of the United States of America. There's no doubt about that. But but that there's I don't think it's all that simple. And I think it's fair to say, as this producer pointed out, that the original Fox villain, of course, was Bill Clinton. <laughs> That's, uh, that is and, a very good and many point, others yeah. subsequently, whether James Comey or you name it. So it's not the sole criterion. Um, but I think what's more telling than even what happened to me at the moment is how now uh, people on the right, including the president of the United States, um, is finding it politically useful to villainize women of color. Including you. Didn't you say you're a criminal or something? Including me, but I've taken very little comparative, comparatively uh, compared to, for example, uh, one of your representatives here in, in the Boston area. Yeah, the squad, Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley, yeah. We're, we're talking, talking, to, Susan we're talking Rice. to Susan Rice, former ambassador to the UN. Her book is Tough Love. You know, I found that, that your family's history fascinating, too. You talk about your mother and father, and uh, your father was one of the Tuskegee Airmen. Talk about his experiences um, in the war, post the war, uh, with, with Jim Crow. Well, my father was born in the heart of segregated South Carolina around 1920. Uh, he was um, the son of a minister and the grandson of a minister, both of whom had had college educations. And he had been raised with the expectation that he would try to go on and do his best and excel beyond that of his parents and grandparents. And yet when he was drafted into World War II uh, into the Army Air Force, um, he was required to serve uh, at Tuskegee, where a great talented cadre of African-American men uh, were relegated to segregated armed forces and taught to be, uh, take some pride, which my father quite questioned, in the fact that they were able to prove that they could fly and fight as good as white uh, servicemen. My father's view was there's nothing to prove. It's ridiculous to suggest that African-Americans aren't as capable as any other people. And he resented not only that uh, mindset, that bigotry that he had suffered under for much of his life, but he also resented the fact that here he was with these other African-Americans fighting for the freedom of everybody in the West but his own people. Um, and he would go to restaurants off the base where, of course, he wouldn't be served um, and couldn't be served, but um, German POWs were being served. 
And so the irony of that and and the the bitterness that that it instilled in him was something quite significant. He went on, despite all of that experience uh, with his childhood and and his service, to be extraordinarily successful. He ended up as a governor of the Federal Reserve, um, having left the World War II and went on to get his Ph.D. at Berkeley. But he had to really fight his own experience and his own mindset in order to have the confidence uh, and the, um, uh, the the wherewithal to compete and thrive despite being an African-American and being told all the time that he can't. And your mother had a fascinating career as well. I mean, Yeah, she, my mother was from... You don't often find women of a certain age, black, white, or anything, having the kind of career she that's did. That's right. Well, my mother was born and raised in Portland, Maine, not too far. Um, she was the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica who came to Maine in 1912 when they were precious few people of color there. Um, and they were they came from very humble background. He was my grandfather was a janitor, my grandmother a maid, and they had no formal education. But they sent all five of their kids to college. My grandfather was the first man to ever have four sons attend Bowdoin College, and my mother went here to Radcliffe College because Bowdoin wouldn't take women, so she had to settle <laughs> for Radcliffe. And she went on. To, she was president of her uh, of the school of of Radcliffe College in her senior year magna cum laude, and went on to be instrumental in establishing the Pell Grant yeah. program, sitting on 11 corporate boards and being a corporate executive. And at a time when you're right, there were very few women, much less women of color. So, Ambassador Rice, uh, are you feeling a certain bond with Marjorie because you're both Stanford Cardinals? <laughs> of course. I mean, let's get down <laughs> of course. to it. No, I had a feeling the way you're smiling tell at Tell the story of, of how yeah. I ended up at Stanford rather than at my mother's alma yeah, mater. She, they were disappointed, right? You <laughs> oh, my, mother, my mother was furious that I would turn down Harvard. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I was taken aback both by her ridiculous reaction, uh, but also. You know, as I was being recruited, um, having gotten ad- admitted to to both, um, and um, there was a, the Harvard recruiter got furious with me when I suggested that I might actually be, be wanting to go to Stanford, and he <laughs> finally screams into the phone, "How can you not go to Harvard?" And I'm thinking because of people like you, <laughs> like you, uh, and I, but I didn't say that. I just said, "Watch me." And that was the end of the conversation. So Susan, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to going back to Harvard tonight. Yeah, and you went to and you went to Oxford. In your, I did go to Oxford I went later to as a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah, remember the Clifton? Uh, okay, yes, fine. that was cool. Yeah. Enough Stanford talk. Okay, okay now, so you were uh, <laughs> when Bin Laden shut right off was gotten. You were not. You were at the UN then. I yes? was. Indeed. Okay, just okay. So could you do a comparison? What your thought process was the other day? Uh, uh, comparing President Obama's reaction to uh, bin Laden, uh, to Donald Trump's reaction to getting al-Baghdadi, and, if you would, compare Obama's readiness to deal with a post-bin Laden al-Qaeda to Trump's uh, preparedness, in your estimation, to deal with a post-al-Baghdadi ISIS. Well, I think, obviously, the, the contrast in their temperaments and style is sort of on display every day. And indeed, that was the the Baghdadi announcement press conference for 50 minutes contrasted with President Obama's very straightforward, uh, you know, nine minutes, not if that, you know, Mm -hmm. very uh, plain statement um, speaks for itself. I think, you know, from a point, the point of view of effectively fighting terrorism. Uh, when you kill a high value target of the sort of bin Laden or Baghdadi, 
um, there is always the risk that the, the killing inspires further uh, terrorist acts and um, you know sympathetic uh, attacks. And so it's really not wise frankly, as President Trump did to spike the football and give gory details and talk about operational um, specifics that can compromise future operations. Apart from just the bombast and the unseemliness of it, it's operationally dangerous. Um, And there's a reason why, you know, President Obama was much more reserved and, and cautious in terms of you know what what's uh, ahead with respect to the fight against ISIS and what was ahead in the fight against Al Qaeda. In both instances, you, we can't take our foot off the the, the gas here because uh, we've seen time and again in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria that terrorist organizations of this sort have great capacity to reconstitute. Um, uh, ISIS was down but not out, and with the removal of the bulk of our forces from northern Syria. And the severing of our partnership with the Kurds who did the fighting against ISIS, we're not as well equipped as we need to be. In fact, we're in a real hole, in my estimation, in terms of keeping the pressure on ISIS. One last comparison, if we can, uh, Ambassador Rice, is uh, you were very critical, Marjorie and I, virtually all of America was very critical, of the president's decision to abandon the Kurds uh, several weeks ago. You were around when the President Obama drew the infamous red line and then didn't follow up on it. You were the outlier, ultimately. Well, explain to us what your take is was on the uh, President's decision not to enforce his ultimatum and why you felt it was wrong at the, the time. The red line thing. The red line, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that, this is a separate issue, of course, from the question of fighting ISIS in oh, Syria. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, which President Obama did. But I do write— It's about Assad and chemical weapons. I, and, yeah. I write at length in Tough Love about um, Syria and the various different challenges we face, the ISIS challenge, the um, red line question, and then the question of whether or not the United States ought to get involved in the Syrian civil war. As people will recall, in, in August of 2013, Assad used chemical weapons, sarin gas, killed up, up to 2,000 people. Um, President Obama had previously said that that type of action would be met with a very for- forceful response. He was prepared to use force. In fact, we had all the targets ready and prepared. But he decided that it would be wiser to get congressional authorization before the use of force because he anticipated I think correctly, that this could evolve into a longer and more sustained military engagement. I actually was one of the only, actually the only person at the cabinet uh, level principals table who argued that he ought to go ahead without congressional authorization, not because I thought he was wrong on the substance, but I thought that he would not get the authorization. Um, long story short is he didn't get the authorization, but instead worked uh, diplomatically to negotiate the Syrian declaration of their chemical stockpile for the first time and the removal and the destruction from out of Syria of 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons. Um, so in my judgment, I end up, as I say quite candidly in the book, I was right on the politics but wrong on the policy in the sense that had we simply bombed, we wouldn't have gotten 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons out. In fact, when President Trump made the decision to bomb and 2017 and 2018, which at the time I supported, Mm -hmm. he had no diplomatic follow-up, and it led to zero metric tons of chemical weapons being removed. We're actually in the same place or worse following those bombings in terms of the practical situation on the ground. 
You know what I've always wondered? We're talking with uh, Susan Rice. The book is Tough Love. She, of course, is the former ambassador to the U.N., worked closely with uh, President Barack Obama. Um, you know, now that we're hearing about the impeachment and stuff, the, the people that are Trump supporters say, well, uh, the Democrats or other people that don't like the president have been after him since day one. But then, of course, you look back at the Obama administration, the famous story about Mitch McConnell going out to dinner the day of the inaugural and said, we have to get rid of this guy. This is, you know, from the moment that Trump, I mean, that Obama was in office, the people were out, Republicans that didn't like him, worked hard to get rid of him. Um, I wonder to someone who worked in that administration, was that surprising? Because, you know, you previously... With George Bush, Al Gore, you won a one, one loss, one one, and and then you kind of said, well, let's hope that we're going to do the right thing for the country. Did, he, Obama, it seems to me, was the first person that people were really, uh, the other side was really out to get from the word go, and I wondered if that was a shock. It seemed to me it was he didn't expect that, and I don't think the country expected that. Um- Remember, you're talking to somebody who served in two administrations, eight years of the Clinton administration and eight years of the Obama administration, as I write about in the book. So I've seen this go back at least to President Clinton's time, where truly there there was an effort to to get rid of him uh, almost from the outset. Um, And I think, you know, we've seen it spiral and escalate, frankly, at least from there. Um, You know, I'm sure that people in the Bush administration would feel that President George W. Bush was unfairly uh, treated, and certainly you accurately described Mitch McConnell's vow from day one, which he amply tried to carry out to you know, disable and destroy Barack Obama's presidency. Fortunately, he failed in a number of respects, and now we have um, what's happening with President Trump. But I think what's frankly different um, between uh, each of the prior experiences that I re- described and the present day is that to a large extent, Congress in the previous administrations played the appropriate role utilizing its oversight capacity and checks and balances. Um, There were limits, and Congress helped enforce those limits. And frankly, prior administrations complied with and respected Congress's role as a co-equal branch. So we've talked about Benghazi, for example. The The Obama administration provided documents, provided testimony, did not withhold anything during eight congressional investigations over Benghazi. I myself provided testimony behind closed doors in the fashion that the Republicans are now claiming is improper, but at their behest. So, you know, the the difference is that the Trump administration is completely stonewalling Congress, um, and Congress is allowing itself, at least in the Senate, to to accept that stonewalling and, and justify it. We're talking to Susan Rice. Did you feel you were representing all people who wanted to give the middle finger to Richard Holbrook when you did <laughs> the former ambassador to the oh, UN? This is a great you, story. Did you feel you were yeah. acting on all their behalfs? Or I didn't quite get that. What do you think? I was acting on my own behalf. You were. But, what if were the I, circums- it, but if but if it had the added benefit of of being vindication for other people who wished they'd done so, so I'm happy it. to take that. How did they, what were the circumstances, if you would? Uh, Richard Holbrook was the U.N. ambassador. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the assistant secretary of state for African affairs. Um, Richard Holbrook had introduced himself to me uh, at the very beginning of our um, relationship by planting himself in my office when I was on Capitol Hill meeting with members of Congress and demanding through my secretary that I return immediately to meet him. I had no idea what was so urgent. We didn't have an appointment. I'd never met him before. I'd come back about an hour and a half later, and he's sitting in my office. 
Uh, and the first thing he says to me is, I dislike you already because you beat my record as the youngest regional assistant secretary of state. <laughs> and it went downhill from there, our relationship. Uh, fast forward uh, probably a year later, maybe a little more, and he has convened a summit in New York at the U.N., of all of the Central African heads of state. Uh, And that included the necessity of bringing back those ambassadors who reported to me, um, who represented the the U.S. in those Central African countries. Um, In an argument with these ambassadors and several of my senior people and his people um, over a substantive issue, he at one stage um, resented the fact that I had the temerity to offer my opinion with some conviction. Um, and stood over the table and looked down at me and surrounded by uh, the the ambassadors who reported to me, who are probably some 20 to 30 years my senior in age, and said with dripping with condescension, I remember when I, too, was a young assistant secretary. And so words failed me, but my middle finger didn't. <laughs> And uh, it's very diplomatic of you, I should say, <laughs> Ambassador. Was. We're on the radio, so um, that's um, that's how it came about. But the funny part of the story is, I, then I, I walked out of the room a few minutes later, thinking to myself, I better inform my bosses in Washington what had happened before he does. And is that so, Albright? That uh, yeah. Albright, so or? I call Secretary Albright and l- later Sandy Berger, who is National Security Advisor, and I report to Matt Albright. I say, Madam Secretary, I'm calling to report that I just gave the finger. <laughs> to a member of the president's cabinet. And she said, well, tell me more. And I explained what transpired. And she said words to the effect of, you go, girl. (laughs) I love that. Susan Rice, can uh, we fast forward to the last Democratic debate? While there seemed to be relative unanimity uh, that uh, the decision of the president to uh, withdraw troops as impulsively as he did from uh, northern Syria was a horrible mistake for a variety of reasons, not to mention... Uh, how loyal the Kurds have been and what good fighters the Kurds have been in our efforts. I didn't get the sense that maybe it was the format that they had any policy beyond saying what the president did was a horrible idea. Do you have confidence that the Democrats on that stage, and one of whom obviously will be a nominee, does get it on foreign policy? And there's a corollary question. You knew Biden, obviously, at least as an outsider, my sense is Joe Biden was picked by Barack Obama in great part because of his foreign policy experience, which Senator Obama did not have. Uh, Do you think Joe Biden in 2019 is the same Joe Biden that you worked with when you were in the White House? Well, first of all, I I think one needs to – you can't paint all of the Democrats with the same brush, particularly when it comes to experience on certain issues. Um, obviously, there's a difference between Andrew Yang and Joe Biden right. when it comes to foreign policy experience. So I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't try to make a statement that applies to all of them. There are many very capable, experienced uh, individuals on that stage who I think uh, would bring to foreign policy far more wisdom, judgment and uh, effort than we've seen, frankly, out of the current president. I, I know Joe Biden well. Um, I was proud to work with him. Um, he was uh, a very committed, very loyal, very effective vice president in my experience. I think we'd be very lucky to have him uh, as president. I haven't endorsed anybody. I'm not, I haven't uh, uh, lined up with any particular campaign at this point. I'll support the Democratic nominee. 
But um, I think that Joe Biden's experience and knowledge, particularly in national security, is really hard to match. His performance doesn't worry you. His actual performance, I mean, in the debates and in this campaign, doesn't no, I think Joe, I, I'm not at all concerned about Joe Biden. We're talking to Susan Rice. The, her Quite book, the contrary. Okay. Her book is Tough Love: My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. You know, one of the things you talked about is is, is the difficulty of watching some of President Obama's achievements unraveled in the and not Trump unraveled, dismantled. Dismantled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what What are you talking about? Well, I mean, President Trump has quite explicitly. Um, sought to undo as many of Barack Obama's signal achievements as possible, from the Affordable Care Act, where he's failed thus far, uh, to many of the, uh, the the most important foreign policy achievements. And, you know, I think it's obvious. We could talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he withdrew from in the early days, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, the opening to Cuba. Um, those are examples of things that he withdrew from or jettisoned uh, without a plan to to replace them with anything meaningful. It was, you know, do the opposite of Obama, but not do anything that clearly advances U.S. interests. And I think across the board, in each of those instances, um, that's been borne out, unfortunately. Do you think Trump knows what he's doing on foreign policy? I think what Trump is doing on foreign policy is, um, as we are increasingly seeing with respect to Ukraine, with respect to Russia, with respect to China— um, is seeking uh, the support of these countries to advance his personal political interests and perhaps his financial interests rather than the national interests. That's not a foreign policy. You don't think he's a Russian asset like some have suggested, do you? I, I'm not prepared to say that. But Are you prepared I, to not say it? To say that he's not? I'm, I'm not prepared to say either. Okay. Uh, I don't have the facts to justify either. What I will say is that it's very bizarre and concerning to see so many of his foreign policy choices benefit Russia to the detriment of the United States. Maybe you are prepared to say how Aretha Franklin turned out at the 50th birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best gifts my husband has ever given me, and there are many, I bet, was uh, to arrange for Aretha Franklin to perform at my 50th birthday party. Aretha Franklin is, you know, is a Shiro to me, even in her passing. And when I was UN ambassador, she was kind enough to host the United Nations Security Council, my colleagues uh, at the UN, um, to a concert of hers at Radio City Music Hall, and then invite all the ambassadors uh, and their spouses backstage for Chinese food with her. That's, Ah. That's what Aretha Franklin was like. We were speaking with former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice. Her new book is Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Coming up, Salman Rushdie joins us to talk about his latest novel, A Modern Day Twist on Don Quixote. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. We're on tape today replaying some of our favorite conversations, which includes the one we had with writer Salman Rushdie about his latest novel, Keyshot. He joined us at our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Well, this is an incredibly imaginative spin. Where did so. you get the idea of doing a modern-day Don Quixote? Where did this come from? You know, before I knew about 
Don Quixote or anything, I actually thought I might do a non-fiction book. I thought I might actually get a car and get my 20-year-old son and drive across America to see what would happen. And he was up for it, except he didn't think that I, would, that I should drive. <laughs> Why couldn't really? he drive? Why not? Hold what on. does that mean? Hold on. Do you have a dr- not a good no, driver? No, I, I said I'd be driving longer than you'd be alive. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, so what happened? Well, I fired him. Oh. <laughs> and I decided to write a fiction instead. And then the thing about my version of Don Quixote is that, you know, the real Don Quixote, the Cervantes, but he's quite a sad sack. You know, he's known as the knight of the dolorous countenance. He has a long, sad face. Mine is absurdly hopeful and optimistic. Tell us about uh, your Don Quixote and yeah. Dulcinea. Tell us about both well, of them if you well, can. Well, he's a, he's a traveling salesman, or he just gets fired at the beginning of the book. Um, but he's obsessed with television. And so in the way that people who are obsessed with TV can do, he begins to think he knows the people, like on the other side of the screen, you know, and, and, and decides he's in love with this daytime talk show host and that he's going to travel across America in his beat-up Chevy Cruze and win her hand because, as he keeps saying, love will find a way. And it's, of course, crazy and absurd. It is. He writes these beautiful letters. Yes, he writes so beautiful letters. He's the last, the last generation of handwriting. <laughs> it's probably true. Did you watch a lot of horrible American television to prepare for this? I'm sorry to tell you that I did. I figured, yes. what, what, what was really at the bottom, would you say? Oh, well, that has to be the Kardashians. But, <laughs> but, I, but I watched a lot of Bachelors and Bachelorettes and... And, you know, all these different competitions. Did you shows. really? You really did? Yeah, I did. I you watched did. Law and Order SUV. It's one of my favorite well, programs. Well, 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 Law, and Order, Law and Order I watched, but that's my addiction. Okay. Oh, good. Because <laughs> um, they roll right one into another. You keep, you before you know there, it, you watch six hours. You can sit there all night. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I love when you were talking about your imaginary son, well, not your imaginary son, but your character's imaginary son, Sancho, that you, you had a whole list. He's Hutch to my Starsky. He's Batman to my Robin. He's Stippy to my Wren. You know, cetera, Tubbs to yeah. my Crockett. I mean, you kind of went through the whole history of television in the United States of America for decades. And the history of sidekicks. Exactly. <laughs> the history of sidekicks. Um, no, I mean, he's, you know, he's in a way a very lonely man. He's never been married. He's, he's always longed for a child. And because he's kind of borderline insane, he believes in what he hears on TV that you can get what you want by literally wishing on a star. So yeah. he goes to Wyoming during the meteor shower, the Perseid meteor shower, and he wishes for a child, and lo and behold, it, this teenage kid materializes in the passenger seat of the Chevy Cruze. And he thinks he's there. And he thinks he's there. So, yeah. so, you know, you have to see that he is a little bit deranged by age, and, and, I mean, he's had a stroke at one point. He's a damaged person. But he and the imaginary kid set off across America. You know, one of the, speaking about setting off across America, as I'm reading your book, and maybe you touch on this when you're mentioning your real-life kid a couple of minutes ago, mm. I'm reading the book and I'm saying, it's pretty amazing. The legendary Salman Rushdie is going to all these out-of-the-way places to do his research. And then at that moment, what flashed on me is watching, I think, on Netflix, uh, Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show. Did you see it, by the way? I, I, I didn't see it. I saw it on Netflix. Okay, so. in which he says, you know all those songs I write about factories? I've never been in a factory in my whole <laughs> life, he says. And all of us are crushed. I assume you didn't go to any of these places. No, I've been to some of them. Oh, you have? Yeah, I've been to some of them, and I made up some of them. Um, but I made them up to be like places that are really there. I mean, there, there's, you know, there is no town in New Jersey 
um, in which people turn into mastodons. I know. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I was that. relieved. It's, but it, but it's, it's more or less, I mean, people who know New Jersey correctly identified it as Weehawken, but I changed the name in order that people could turn it into Weehawken. mastodons. It was Weehawken. That's what it was. It was, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you also touch on uh, some of the great, um, you know, themes of America, obviously, in 2019. And, and you know, one of them was, it was the racism uh, your character, who's uh, not a white man, encounters. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I just thought if you're going to send... I mean, he's Indian-American, you know, and Indian-Americans occupy a kind of strange middle ground in the, quest, in the story of racism in America because, of course, the, the big story is, is between the white commu- the supremacists and the African-American community. You know? but, but actually, in a strange way, in the kind of post-9-11 period, anybody with a brown skin can be mistaken by a certain kind of person as being potentially Arab and therefore potentially terrorist. Um, and so all brown people come, have sort of begun to be the target of, of racism in a way that maybe they didn't used to be, because this is a very well-integrated community in many ways. Yeah. Um, so I thought if I'm going to send these people across the middle of America, it would be unrealistic for them never to encounter any hostility. You know, I didn't want the book to be some kind of tirade about racism, but it would also have been unrealistic for nothing to happen except that everybody's friendly. Have you encountered... You've been, how long have you been here? 20 years? 20 roughly? years, yeah. Have you encountered it? I mean, sometimes in print, you know. Um, there, are, there are things that are written about me where I think it, they wouldn't say it like that if, if I wasn't of Indian origin, if I wasn't ethnically different. There's, there, there's a way in which... People, I mean, if, if people want to attack like Jonathan Franzen, they do it one way. If they want to attack me, they do it another way. And we all get very good at smelling the undertone. You know, speaking of white supremacy, you describe an unnamed, I think unnamed character, but you don't name him as who I assume he is, an imaginary CEO-obsessed uh, cable news with white supremacist base, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why, you are not alone in this. Uh, the name which shall not be spoken. Uh, why is his name not spoken? Uh, just, you know, just that we obsess about him all day, all the time. And I just didn't want him in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in your book, but you didn't want him in I, your book. I didn't want his name in my book. Are it's, you, it's already on half the buildings in America. Did you not become... You became a citizen. Yeah. Did you vote in the last election? Yeah, that went well. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm assuming you did not vote for uh, Donald Trump. No, no, I how, did not. How... Anxious are you about the prospect of a re-election of Donald Trump? I'm extremely anxious. Um, I think, you know, basically, if he's re-elected, we're screwed. Well, you you, can we, just for a second on this, and then we'll return to the book. I mean, obviously, you write about, I would, you know, the moral decay of much of America. Beyond Trump, what does it say to you that the American people did elect Donald Trump, and possibly, even though the numbers wouldn't suggest yeah. it now, could decide after seeing him for three years that they'll vote for him again. Well, what I, what I think is that this is not unique to the United States. You know, that there is a thing happening around the world where people are voting for this kind of what they believe to be a strong man leader, you know, and, and um, uh, in all these countries that I've spent my life writing about, which is India and Britain and here, there's, there's a sort of similar, mm-hmm. there's an echo between what's happening. In the, so, I mean, I, can, I just hope that that trend can be reversed. And one of the things I think that the three places have in common is that in each case, people have been sold a fiction about the past in order to justify the present. You know? So 
um, you know, in England, there's this fantasy of a glorious golden age of England which, could be, which people could get back to if only all these awkward foreigners would go away. You know? and, and in India, there's a, there's a fantasy of a golden age of Hinduism which could be recreated if only these Muslims would shut up. And, and here, you know, there's this red hat. Um, and it's the same thing. It's a fiction about the past, you know, uh, a golden age. Golden ages are always fictions. They're always myths, you know, and, and they're being used to justify, you know, the, the reality. So when, when po pol political people start playing with fiction, you know, I get interested. We're talking to Salman Rushdie. His latest is Keyshot. Well, that's another one of the themes, I think, that, that this inability to distinguish fiction from fact and confusion about yeah. uh, what's true. Talk about that in Keyshot a little bit. Well, you know, the book, is, the book uses reality TV and, and, and its ugly sister, the Internet, <laughs> as, as, kind of, as kind of comic foils. Um, and, I mean, I think the book's mainly funny. I mean, we're talking about these serious underlying themes, but it's kind of written as a comedy. But what I, I guess it is saying is that if, if we live in, a, in an environment in which people are endlessly blurring the distinction between what's true and what's false, because I mean, the thing about reality television is it's not reality. You know? Correct. It's completely manipulated. If that happens all the time, every day, then some people at least can begin to be confused about how to tell what's true from what's false. And that, that's a dangerous situation. You know, it's something that isn't funny. And I heard you in this podcast, New Yorker Radio podcast, uh, you, you talk about, you touch on the opioid crisis in America in the book, and then I heard you talk, spoke, speak about your own sister. Yeah. W tell us about well, that. Well, this is, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but uh, so it would have been really quite near the beginning of this, this particular plague. You know, that, that it was just over 12 years ago, and, and, and she's my I had three sisters. She was the youngest of the three and 14 years younger than me. And at that time, she was only 45 years old. And she, you know, she suddenly had a heart attack and died. And, and when we looked into it, we found that she was really quite heavily dependent on, on these things, you know, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, these things. Her, her bathroom cabinet was kind of like a pharmacy. You know, and then, of course, you feel terrible because that's your sister, and you think, how could I not have known? Um, but none of us did know the extent of her dependency. And, and so then it became personal to me. You know? And, I mean, really, since then, I've been digging into that thing, that subject. Uh, I mean, not all the time, but on and off, I've been exploring it. And it's only now, a couple of years ago, when I thought, okay, I think I'm ready to write about this. So it did come from a very personal place. What kind of ex where has your exploration taken you? I mean, beyond to that portion of your book that you write about on the opioid crisis. Well, I mean, I, you know, I looked at, I mean, I was looking at the Sackler family and, and, and Johnson and Johnson long before they burst into the news lately. But one of the things, and actually the, the character in the novel, there's this crooked Indian doctor yeah. um, who... <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you that there's a real Indian doctor <laughs> <laughs> that, that he's based on. Oh, no. Who was a crooked real Indian doctor? Crooked oh. real Indian, who's now okay. in jail, so, you know. Oh, uh, that's good. There we are. But, yeah. but he, the thing that alarmed me is not just that, that there are crooked entrepreneurs, because goodness, what a surprise, you know, but, but that it was so relatively easy to corrupt parts of the medical profession. You know, that, yeah. that for, for not huge amounts of money, that doctors became willing to prescribe these very dangerous substances, what's called off-label, for things they're not supposed to be for. 
You know, we, we have the mayor uh, here who is uh, in recovery. The mayor of Boston was with us for an hour, and we were talking about the, the Sackler family came up. And I know I speak for Marjorie. We are both believers that orange jumpsuits do a lot uh, to get cause people to get religion. There were no orange jumpsuits for leaders out of the meltdown in 2008, except we've talked to Frontline, did a beautiful, incredible story called Abacus about a Chinese-American-owned yeah, bank, 2,651st biggest bank in America, whose only leaders who were prosecuted. Uh, I asked Marty Walsh if he thought this, who would like to see a Sackler in jail or two. Would you, and would it change the dynamic in this country? I mean, I, I wouldn't be at all averse <laughs> to that fashion item, you know, to the orange jumpsuit being put on the Sackler family. But you see, the thing is that it's a broader problem. The problem is, is across the medical community, not just in these manufacturers. And also then, you know, I mean, I'm not, in the end, an investigative journalist. I'm a novelist, so what interests me is the human, the human cause of these things. And, and what I felt it showed, this, this epidemic, is a kind of loneliness and pain in America, um, and much more out there in small towns than in the big cities. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and that this, this is, in a way, a symptom of that loneliness and pain, that people look for this kind of um, relief and succor, and then before they know it, they're addicted, and then they're a junkie. We're talking to Salman Rushdie. His latest novel is Keyshot. You know, I was looking at the front of your book. I think you've already 15 books. Uh, this, fifth, no, this one's 19. 19. It's, it's 19. A, even more counting, impressive. Yes. So I'm just, and you've won all sorts of prizes, a long list of prizes. This one is, is, is up for the booker, correct? Which is. is a big deal. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, how do you... Um, that's a lot of output. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Did you enormous. know that, by the way, yeah. before she said well, that? Sure you knew it was that. a lot about it. I'm sure you knew it. that. I remember well, we talked to you a little, a little while ago about the Golden yeah. House you yeah. before that. So how do you do this? What's your, what's your, what's your routine? Do you get up at, I mean, do you, are you a night I mean, writer? No, I'm writer? a daytime writer. Daytime writer. I'm, I'm, I do it like an office job. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a little surprised myself. By, by In recent years, the books have come quite quickly, you know, that, I mean, I've had a novel every year for the last six years, I mean, every other year for the last six years. Wow. And, in fact, my younger son, who I was mentioning, said to me the other day, he said, Dad, are you writing more books these days? Because <laughs> he said, when I was younger, I don't remember there being so many books. <laughs> and he's right. And I think sometimes... This is your, not your imaginary son. This is this your real, real son. son. That's a real son. son. Yes. They didn't want to drive with them across country. Okay. <laughs> but I think if you're lucky as a writer... Sometimes you sort of hit a hot streak, you know, where, where, where the books show up. And I think what you do is ride the hot streak until it runs out. Well, you know what you also said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I had the sense almost that the book was writing you the way you've yeah. spoken about it, that all of a sudden things took different turns. Yes, that's what happens. Now. So how, does that happen in all your books or is that it happens, book? It happens in all my books, So yeah. you start out not with an outline of where you're going to no, go. I, no, I start out with a, with a... I do start out with a plan, but I also... I know that that, you know, the magic happens on the page. And, and I want to allow myself to have a better idea th than the one I started out with, so that the idea changes and develops and the characters show me who they are and what they need. And so I've often thought of it as more like listening, you know, listening to the characters and trying to see what their story needs to be and what story they want to tell about themselves 
more that than, than just creating it. How thrilling is that when that moment happens? Oh, it's, you know, when it happens, it's, it unfortunately doesn't happen nearly often enough. So is but this like something that's, that's, that's uh, uh, unique to magical realism? No, or is this, no, I so think this everybody So this is a lot does. of novelists. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two kinds of writers. There are writers who need to plan everything very carefully. Yeah. You know, I mean, Scott Fitzgerald was like that. He needed enormous amounts of architecture. Huh. And then he would just write, he'd write I mean, almost down to the what's happening on each page. And then he'd write it out. You know, with, and James Joyce was like that. So there's a lot of great writers who need that. And I mean, I started out needing it when I was younger. I needed to have a really worked out skeleton before I could put any flesh on it. You know. Now, I mean, I think it's I've begun to think of it more like jazz, you know, that, that you have a, there is a kind of structure, but, but you know, you, you let it, you let you let see what happens. See what and happens. And does your experience make it easier, or is it still difficult? Well, it, no, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. But I think oh, the, good. Well, I love to hear you say that because oh, I hate it when people say it's so easy. No, it's a piece of cake. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. very hard. But I think what the experience does do is it gives you, in a way, the courage to trust your imagination in this way. We're talking to Salman uh, Rushdie. His book is new book is Key Shot. Key Shot, excuse me. So. I want to know. I mean, you've written a lot about. Obviously, we talked to you last time. The golden, the, the, the golden house was all about this this family, and it was, it was contemporary American New York City. And you've taken wide looks at the United States. Are you hopeful now at all, or pretty despondent? No, because no. One of the reasons I wanted Kishat to be this ludicrous optimist, you know, um, I mean, he's just all the way through the book, traveling across. You know, a, a, an America in a, in a condition of some difficulty. But he never loses his hopefulness and optimism and, and believes that things will work out. You know, I mean, that's his whole... Throughout the book, that's his point of view. And I think there's a bit of me that's him. There's a bit okay. of me that's a What ludicrous. does that mean? You're a stalker, too? Is that what it means? Because he is a stalker. <laughs> He's kind he? of a stalker. Yeah. He's a stalker. What does that I mean? Wait, wait, wait. What, no, no, no I don't do the stalking part. I understand that. But so <laughs> what... But, but I mean, I don't believe in, in, in that everything is necessarily going to be permanently in a condition of gloom and doom. You know, I, I think it's... Things can change, and, and we can change them. Looking at the United States from a, a little bit of an outsider perspective... Um, he's an insider now. Well, he's an insider now, but you, you, you're not from here. You didn't grow up here. Nope. So um, do, do you think that we are a country that can kind of right our ship? Or I hope so. I mean, I think... Can Great Britain I, right I, its I'm, ship? I'm, in a way, more optimistic about this country being able to do that than the UK or India. Because I yeah. think, because I think if, this, if the Brexit thing goes through, that's a generational catastrophe. You know, and there's no way back. I mean, if, the, if another future British government says to the EU, please, can we come back? I, I don't think they're going to get a very friendly answer. Okay. Yeah. And so, so here I think we can fix it, but we have to fix it. Salman Rushdie's latest novel is Keyshot, a modern-day adaptation of Don Quixote. Up next, Imani Perry joins us to talk about her new book about being a mother to two black sons growing up in a hostile world. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're on tape today, replaying some of our favorite discussions, which includes the one we had with Imani Perry about her latest book, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. She joined us at the GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. 
Thank you very much for being here. And it's a, it's a great themes and a beautifully written book. So congratulations Thank again. Thank you. Um, because we talked to you before about your uh, writing. But tell us, um, was it because of your mom? Or why did you, you write this book? Well, it was actually at the suggestion of my editor, Gayatri Potnik at Beacon Press, who's here in Boston. Um, and partially because I talk about my children all the time. Um, and uh, they're such a central part of both my intellectual life and my professional life. And so... Um, you know, I guess she was thinking that given how much I reflect on them, it would be interesting to have some thoughts about what it means to raise black boys today. Um, and the book actually turned out to be different than I initially, usually what I'm sharing is sort of um, humorous anecdotes, and this became a much more sober project than it initially intended. But Did you run it, before, be, uh, run it by your kids before you said yes? Yes, I gave them veto power. Did you really? Um, over every story in the book. And even over me. Wow. Right again. And yeah. they're teenagers, right? Yeah, 13 and 16. Because they're very judgmental at those teenage years. <laughs> yeah, although is... mine are really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so in my pair, you, you start out in the first page of this book by saying, um, uh, I think it must be terrifying, terrifying to raise a black boy in America. And everybody says that yes. all the time. Which you don't, I'm, I feel I bad because I've said things well, like it, that. You but know, you, you don't like that. I don't. Um, it, it, oftentimes it feels... Um, voyeuristic on the one hand, but also, you know, it is true. There is a, a certain terror that comes from the reality, and you see the stories of Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis and, um, and just gun violence generally and, and black boys being um, the primary victims of it. But also it takes away from the incredible joy, right? So the, the central part of my parenting is raising these beautiful human beings, and I don't want their lives to be defined by that, that I think is something really important for me to communicate with them, but also for the world to recognize. They're full human beings, despite the, the depth of inequality. You know, Monty, I was going to uh, reference a portion of your book that I'm guessing in the current environment almost everybody is, but I know you were kind enough to agree to read a portion, and I don't want to step on what you may have chosen to read. Can you read us a little bit sure. before we continue? What, do you, sure. what have you chosen to read? It's, a, um, it's actually, there's a, a paragraph on page 26 of my book, which is about the range of black men who my children have encountered. You are gifted with something and it is important. You have seen black men of every stripe, of every sort, for the entirety of your life. Famous and homeless, athlete, intellectual, musician, teacher, businessman, public servant, fast food worker. Seen, and I do not mean simply knowing who they are, I mean hearing their stories. The range of dispositions and tones of laughter, accents and nationalities and drawls and swagger and awkwardness, hyper-masculine and elegantly feminine in every variation in between, a common thread, a dramatic assortment. And you were members of this collaged confederacy, which, as a through line through all manner of circumstance, can share the Marvin Gaye refrain, makes me want to holler the way they do my life, makes me want to holler, throw up both my hands. So why'd you pick that section? Um, because I think it's important to constantly keep in mind, despite the way that race often flattens difference and the complexity of human experiences, is that, you know, black Americans are an incredibly diverse body of people with so many different forms of um, expression and variations and identity. And we need to keep track of that at the same time as we talk about the kind of universality of race um, as experienced in, in, in black lives. And I want my sons to... You know, keep in mind, there's so many ways to be, right? There's so many ways to, to Can be. Can I move yes. to a section that was powerful prior to yes. a trial in Dallas uh, a couple of weeks ago, but takes on 
more power and relevance. Now, we spoke a lot on the mm -hmm. show about the Amber Ga uh, Geiger trial, mm -hmm. the murder of Botham Jean, and obviously what happened in the courtroom ever uh, afterwards got a lot of attention. I want to read, if it's okay with you, just sure. a little bit. I'm going to jump. You write... Uh, uh, once our house alarm was tripped twice in one night, I mm -hmm. tried to remain calm, but there was a loud banging sound at the back door the second time. The alarm company called again. I had said the police should not come the first time. I agreed the second time, and then I'll jump down. And what if the police officers saw you, mahogany in the shadows, tall and lean and dreadlocked, and decided you were the intruder, the one who didn't belong in this big house with lilac bushes and manicured Japanese trees in front? And what if they took you out. Yes. Uh, uh, when, did was, you hmm? return to this in your head during this recent trial and its aftermath? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's something. I mean, that moment, I told my son um, to lock his bedroom door. I, I, I texted him. I called him. Um, thank goodness he had a cell phone because I was more afraid of the police potentially mistaking him for an, for an intruder than an intruder, right? And that, in some ways, is the conundrum, right? That's the heart of it. And um, you know, this trial is, is, a, is, is, yes, it's a reminder of this kind of repeated theme of what the terror of racism actually is, is that you cannot predict that behavior, whatever your behavior is, if you do everything the right way, you can't predict a certain outcome. That terror, you know, that horror might come to your your front door. Yeah, yeah. I know you spent some time in this part of the world in, in earlier in your life. Yes. But I bet you you're not aware of. Uh, I think one of the most significant Supreme Judicial Court decisions that has gotten no play in this state. A couple of years ago, the state's highest court ruled that while up until that point, if a black man had run away from a police officer, a jury or a judge could draw a conclusion of guilt. Guilt, right? But because of the recent history mm. of police with black men, uh, that no longer could that guilt be, be presumed. presumed yeah. Which is, a, it was unanimous, by the way. It is That's a good. huge statement yeah. by a court, don't you think? It is a huge statement by a court, and it's also kind of harrowing to think about, though, the implications, why they had to do that, right? Mm -hmm. that, um, that it's sort of like, there's, you know, what do you do? Do you run? Do you stand still? Do you, I mean, that sense of being absolutely um, trapped. We're you talking know, before, about Monty Perry. Before we leave this, the, the, the trial, and this is um, Botham. I was, is that how you say his first name? I think so. I think it's Botham, but Botham, Jean. Jean. Yeah. Anyway, this young man, I think he was 27, 28, sitting on the couch yes. in his own apartment eating his ice cream, and this white cop comes in. She claims she was in the wrong apartment. Mm -hmm. She was convicted of murder. She shot this young man. And then there was a scene in the courtroom where uh, the brother, the younger brother, goes right. and hugs the defendant, and the judge comes down. And we had a discussion with a lot of our listeners and some of our guests about this subject and um, again something I haven't thought of. Why is it always the black people that have to forgive the white people yeah. and they complained <laughs> about the mm -hmm. reciprocity so I wonder that there's not the reciprocity. Right. You don't see you know, the white judge coming down and hugging no. the black guy that just got uh, convicted of murder. Absolutely you, not. So, so <laughs> yeah. what's your take on that whole forgiveness thing? Well I do think that there's a uh, a distinction to be drawn between the unfairness of judicial process, which is what people are responding to by and large, and the personal um, spiritual landscape in which forgiveness takes place. I just don't think that it is any of our business to dictate how the, um, the family grieves. Right? That's a personal matter. I think the behavior of the judge was actually quite alarming to me um, and sort of tipped, you know, my personal interpretation kind of tipped on the edge of a lack of professionalism, but I think it's wise for us to keep our focus on um, the, the constant requirement 
um, to kind of for, to, to forego outrage in order to make your way through the world, right? And so that this, this becomes a symbol not because, you know, you have to respond in a particular way or p- forgiveness should not be practiced, but the question is how many times, right, before um, something will change. We're talking to Monty Perry. Your book is Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. You know, you just mentioned spiritual landscape. Um, somewhere in here... I read about sanctified grace, yes. something that came from uh, your Catholic upbringing. Mm-hmm. Tell people about that. Yeah, it's the grace that is not a consequence of what you do, but just the fact that you are. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? We're always trying to justify. I think this is universal and particularly acute for Americans. Justify our existence, our value, um, assert our, you know, our integrity. But there is a part of what it means to be a human that is just felt grace-filled, period, that I think it's important to hold on to particularly for groups of people who are demonized repeatedly. We're talking to Imani Perry, her new book is Breathe, a Letter to My Sons. Something else that I actually heard this when you were in an interview with Krista Tippett, who I really like. I wish she wouldn't talk so much in her interviews, but anyway. (laughs) That's what you say to me, too, Marjorie. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I probably do it, too, but I try not to. Anyway, um, and I'm not going to get this exactly right. I'm going to paraphrase, but the James Baldwin line about Americans wanting to think about our innocence Innocence. all the time, I found that fascinating. Explain it. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is Americans are so invested, and Baldwin talked about this, that we have to let go of the innocence because there's such an investment. I'm not that. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not a bigot. I'm not classist. And so, and that becomes the animating emotion as opposed to how do we ameliorate these injustices and these evils, right? And the reality is that we have to do deep personal interrogation in addition to social transformation if we want to transform. So you have to get over the innocence um, in order to actually move towards a more just society. And you yeah. also talked in that interview about Americans kind of assuming that we're all going to have charmed lives. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, I th- and that's part of my, my message to my sons as well, is that you know, we're not all going to have charmed lives, partially because the world is so deeply unjust, but that's also not the measure of the value of a human life, right? So that if we, if we place our value um, in, in love and being able simply to take care of ourselves and to have community and to engage in care of each other and um, participate in, in, in the world around you, that that is a meaningful life. It does not require, having a meaningful life does not require all the bells and whistles that we're constantly told is what makes it worthwhile to be on this planet. Yeah. So can I take you out of context, then you can put yourself back in okay. context? Is that a fair deal? Absolutely. I'll read one sentence. I have taught you to not love white people. Yes, this is the sentence that keeps coming I up. I knew it. I had a feeling <laughs> it was. Everywhere I go. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, um, and, the, and, and I go on and say, this is, of course, I say, it's, you know, I know this is going to get me into trouble. But as I say, this is, of course, not about individuals, right? And I go and say, you know, I love many white people. Um, I, I, I dislike many black people, you know, not, you know, but that what I'm talking about is the idea of whiteness, right? And the idea of whiteness um, in terms of how this country was founded is a, is a concept that's based on exclusion um, and status, being superior to others. Um, And that's very different from, that's not an individual account, right? That's about a characterization of a group of people as necessarily superior. And I don't want them to love that because I want them to love themselves. You know, you talk about your own experiences in Monty Perry um, being mocked in school and talk about the slights that your kids have endured even in so-called progressive schools. Oh, yes. Start with you and then tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I... 
I really, um, <laughs> there's so many stories, it's hard to know where to begin and end, but the reality is that racism is pervasive even in the most progressive schools, and oftentimes those are the places that have the hardest time dealing with it because they're so invested in resting on their laurels. We, you know, we're inclusive, right? But you see repeated patterns, um, and what often happens is that the patterns are then attributed to the children, Right, that there's something deficient. But my mother always said, and she was quoted, she wrote this in one of her books, a quote of, a, of, a, of an older woman in New Orleans in which she said, if the corn don't grow, don't nobody ask what's wrong with the corn. <laughs> right? So if something is not, you know, so if, there's not, if it's not an effective environment for a group of kids, you have to ask the question, where, how are we failing? Right? And not presume deficiency. And so, um, so I have, you know, um, and, the, and I tell a particular story about a teacher in high school, who was known as an extraordinary teacher, he really was wonderful, who was v- pretty overtly racist um, and, um, and hostile and aggressive and yelled at me my first day of class at a new school because I didn't have a pencil and refused to, to engage any of the books that had black authors and um, et cetera. And, you know, it wasn't just a matter of the personal slight and injury. It was also that he then enlisted the complicity of all of my classmates and everybody else in the school um, to his violence and hostility towards black children. And then on top of it, he refused me the opportunity of the gift of his gifts as a teacher. Um, And that kind of cruelty to children is pervasive and is unacceptable. And so, now part of what I say is one thing when I experienced it, but when it's your children, you just... I mean, the rage that I have to hold back in those moments. Do you re-experience it when you tell this story about what happened to you? You seem to. I do. I keep hearing that, actually. Various stories. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a quite emotional person anyway, mm-hmm. but it's also probably because I'm here in Boston, <laughs> which is where it happened. <laughs> oh, oh, is it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. because yeah, you spent part of your life in most Boston, of my, right? Most of my child I was born in Alabama, and that's where my family is, but I was here from age 5 to 17. So, so did you go to, I'm what, sorry. You want to tell us where you went to high school? Um, I went to three high schools. You did? I did. I started out at the Commonwealth School, and then um, I went to Cambridge Ridge and Latin for a term, and then I spent my last two and a half years at Concord Academy. Okay. I know what your next question is, Marjorie. Where, Go ahead. I, want, I wonder where it happened. Well, um, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> I will say this. It happened at Concord Academy, um, but I also, that's a place that I feel very connected to. I just joined the board of the school. I was really nurtured and loved at the school, so... I want to just say that because that experience did not characterize all of my experience. So I'm I'm wondering, wondering, oh, sorry. I was going to ask you, I was wondering about in your, in your kids' um, progressive schools, um, somehow it seems in a lot of progressive schools right now, 2019, it's a lot easier to talk about gay issues than it is to talk about race issues. Um, mm. um, are they able to talk about race issues in your children's school? Yeah, but, uh, you know, honestly, I don't think they do very well on sexuality and, and gender either. I mean, I think that all of these things, we, are, we have learned how to have superficial conversations. But if you go on a, a, a field or in a, in a playground during a, at any number of schools, you know, you see gender segregation, right? You see the ways in which boys who are not sort of partic- participating in conventionally masculine ways get ostracized or marginalized. These are not... So, yes, we're getting better at talking, but we, I don't think that we have yet figured out um, how to have um, 
the kind of deep reckoning we need to have to recognize the complete value of all children, irrespective of the kind of identity categories they fall into. So, Honestly, Monica, yeah. Perry, last thing for me, breathe a letter to my sons. It also felt like it was a letter to me. Yes, so it is. It is, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah. yes. So who is it written? I mean, I know it's written. So it's, yeah, no, I mean, it centers... Um, um, the parents of black children, but it certainly is for everybody because this is a witness I think is important for us all to embrace, right? This is part of the fabric of our society, these experiences. I want my children to be able to enter into the world where people can see them fully as they are as human beings, and that's the aspect. So that's a, you know, that means I want everybody to pay attention to this, and of course not just for them. You know, can we end where we began? You said you ran everything by and gave them uh, veto power or everything you did. How did they feel when they read the finished product? Um, they don't really care that much. I mean, you know, I mean, you know it's like, I mean, they think, they're, they think it's cute, right? It's nice. It's cute. My, my son went, uh, my younger son went on a camping trip, and we, we had to write letters for the kids on the camping trip. And he was like, I don't even know what the whole point of that project was. You just wrote a whole book to me. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think, but it's, you know, the reality is it, it, our day-to-day life is filled with these conversations. And, you know, we really do work very hard to have close relationships with each other. And so the book is somewhat kind of public-facing in a way that is a repetition, but really they are much more focused on our, our, our you know, face-to-face oh, sure. relationships. Imani Perry's latest book is Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Coming up, Lindy West joins us to talk about her new book, The Witches Are Coming. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. <laughs> Boston Public Radio. If you're tuning in, we're replaying some of our greatest hits today, which includes the conversation that Jared Bowen and Marjorie had with writer Lindy West about her latest book. It's called The Witches Are Coming. Lindy West, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a big thrill. It's a big thrill to to talk to you, Lindy. Um, So I, I alluded a little bit to how you've twisted this witch hunt idea around, but just elaborate a little bit on witch hunt for our listeners. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a very audacious maneuver to <laughs> claim, you know, to spend uh, you know decades calling women witches to silence and discredit us. And then the moment a man faces a shred of accountability for genuinely doing something very bad like abusing power um, or or sexually harassing uh, their employees or, you know, any of any version of of what we've seen come to light under me too. Um, then suddenly their witches being persecuted and we are witch hunters. So um which by the way, witch hunts were gendered. You know, the yeah. actual the actual term is is gendered and involves um often uh, burning to death. So I, I just find there's just something so um so like disingenuous and melodramatic and um I don't know, just pathetic about about wanting to claim, uh, wanting to 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 call us witches and witch hunters, and so I uh, went ahead and reclaimed both terms. Like you know what? Fine, uh, we are witches, just like you've always said, and we're witch hunters, just like you said. And so apparently, you're being hunted by packs of witches. I love it. <laughs> well, when you look around, what's the traction that you see this kind of reappropriation of that language gets when it's used by people like the president or other white men who suddenly see the, in their perspective, the tables turned on them? 
Well, I think it's a really effective rhetorical tactic to um, not just claim innocence, but claim persecution. Um, it, it puts the other side, our side, or if you, I mean, I know it's, it's reductive to divide everyone into sides, but, um, you know, it puts us on the defense, um, you know, where then we're drawn into this absolutely ludicrous framing um, you know, to even to even sit here and deny that this is a witch hunt implies that there's any legitimacy to that at all. And it's a bad faith argument. Um, and I think it's really it's really effective to, um, you know, to not just say, like, no, I'm not a predator, but to say, wow, I can't believe that you are persecuting me like this. Um, it's kind of a classic abuse tactic, honestly. Um, and and that's because it works. That's why it's a classic. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, Lindy West, it never occurred to me, though, until I read your book, that, and, uh, this whole twisting on its head of witch hunt, because it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. But I wonder what you think, a couple of years into the uh, uh, Me Too moment here, I mean, you quote Rebecca Traster, who said, and she's so right, it's not about sex, it's about work. Um, but where are we? We just got rid of the head of McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this is an interesting one because the head of McDonald's, who is divorced, uh, was having an affair with an underling and they got rid of him. Now, I don't know. This could be about maybe McDonald's. Is, they, they have a lot of sexual harassment suits you know, pending in the lower levels of, you know, from people that are flipping the fries in the stores. He's obviously at the head of the company. So I don't know really what the backstory is. But, yeah, they did. They got rid of a guy having an affair with an underling, which I thought was, was, was really something. But is there some – are we making progress or not? I mean, I, I, it's tough to quantify. I mean, I certainly think – yeah, there, it definitely feels like there's some degree of progress um, because, you know, it, it, it's not like um, – it's not really like this Harvey Weinstein stuff was news, you know? It's yeah. not like you'd never heard that before or that we hadn't been hearing um, stories about Bill Cosby for decades um, or even Michael Jackson, you know? And the fact that, that eventually – the tide of public opinion does turn um that that is that is some measure of progress at the same time um there have been very few you know real lasting consequences um that have actually you know been um uh, delivered what's the word <laughs> um you know i mean realized re- realized <laughs> yes. you know come come to fruition it's, i don't know i like that uh, yeah come <laughs> I'm to a fruition profe- i'm a professional writer um <laughs> so you know and, and that's not to say that a, a lot of men haven't had their lives upended but um on the other hand harvey weinstein is out having a great time at a comedy club louis ck is is on tour um uh, I, I believe there's a Matt Lauer comeback brewing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, th- there's a lot of hand-wringing about how this is going too far. And again, it's a witch hunt. It's a witch hunt. And we need to we need to figure out how to protect men from having their lives ruined. And we need to find a road to redemption for people who who want to come back. And um, it just feels like putting the cart before the horse. Like, we haven't even figured out... And, and that's not to say that this isn't... Um, a sort of wild new system that hasn't been hammered out yet. Like we, we are building a new system um, and and that is progress and there is work to be done. You know, obviously we do need to figure out um, what do people want to, what do, what do we, what do we need from people? What does atonement look like? Um, but in this moment, it feels like a threshold has been crossed. Um, and and at, at the very least, 
progress is now possible um, in, in a broader way than it was before. But I don't think that we've figured out the actual mechanisms of that progress yet at all. Well, it's interesting to think about uh, about men in this. So Marjorie just asked the question about Me Too, presumably about women and the advances made. Um, you just spend a lot of time talking about men, and you do that in your book, too, that so much of this conversation has still become about men. You you talk about the character you named Larry Berry. And so we're not even talking about the, the, the people with charges against them, like the Harvey Weinsteins, but the average Average guys out there who see this about them too, what you talk about in the book. I mean, how do you see that taking up so much space in the room? Yeah, I mean, I would love to talk about all of the people, um, all of the women um, whose careers were derailed by this kind of behavior. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, there's so much concern about how is Louis C.K. going to get his millions of dollars back. How about all the women who quit comedy because they felt unsafe in their workplace or not just even not unsafe, milder than that. You know, they felt unwelcome in their industry in a vague way that a vague but very, very pervasive and powerful way. And that's not just true for comedy and show business. That's true for academia and, you know, STEM fields and probably every industry on Earth. Um, and, and And that absence is unquantifiable and it's invisible. We have no idea who we lost, what kind of brilliance has been lost. And that's a a real tragedy. And um, yeah, there is a, you know, obviously we do need to talk about gender. Um, It's it's not a completely male-female situation, obviously. Like this is not only, um, obviously women can abuse power. Obviously trans and non-binary people exist. And, you know, gender is a more complicated issue than than just to say men bad, women good. Um, But, you know, speaking broadly, uh, and especially, you know, I, I think if we're thinking about, say, Harvey Weinstein, we're talking about, um, young women who have been um, made to who have been preyed upon, and and who have been, um, you know, they're made their professional lives have been made contingent upon um, uh, allowing themselves to be preyed upon, and that's a a really really vile um, situation that has that is replicated across industries to varying degrees, you know, and and we need to look at every shade of that and really start to think about um, at least at least acknowledge the impact, you know, at least acknowledge the loss. Um, Maybe before we start to talk about the road to redemption for uh, people who've done bad things. <laughs> yeah, that is an excellent point. We're talking with Lindy West. She's uh, the author of The New Book, The Witches Are Coming, and she's also the uh, author of the memoir Shrill, which became a... You talk about how you were looking at people like in, in uh, Winona Ryder and, and, or Janine Garofalo in Reality Bites and, and it, The Breakfast Club, the, you know, the, the people in there, the... the, the the pop culture figures that we girls mold ourselves around because we don't see anybody like in the Adam Sandler type where girls are being gross and silly. And it was true for me and it was true for you. Yeah. I mean, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think um, obviously uh, representation in media is something that I write about a lot. Um, And it's in my in my first book shrill uh, there's a whole chapter where i sort of list all of the um fat female role models that i can remember from my youth as a fat girl and you know it's like ursula the sea witch 
and Mrs. Potts, the teapot from Beauty and the Beast. You know, like yeah, like the, the yeah. choices the choices were um, were very slim. Um, not uh, no pun intended. Um, but uh, you know, I, I and so the, part of the reason why I wrote the book Shrill was to create a piece of media that uh, represented me, you know, that was something that I really could have used when I was younger. And I was fortunate enough to get to then turn that book into a television show and make a show where the hero of the story is a young fat woman who lives a complex, dynamic, fun, happy life. Um, and but and so so the landscape has changed in certain ways. You know, there has been there have been inroads into representation and um, there are definitely are more options um, more diversity in media. My daughters have have more opportunities to see themselves represented than I did. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, yeah, okay. So I so I got a fat show. <laughs> I got a fat show on TV. <laughs> um, you know, on Hulu on a streaming service. Um, and uh, it, it, it's not necessarily the same as like <laughs> like. Let's be realistic. We know what the contestants on the on the Bachelor look like. We certainly we, do. We know what ninety nine percent of women who are put on TV look like, and that's still the same. It's the same as how they looked in nineteen eighty nine when I was searching for someone that looked like me on TV. You know, uh, and so to some degree, I think it's tempting for people to see, you know, these little tokenized um m- you know moments of progress and say look we're doing it but the reality is that yeah we're we're starting to do it we we did a little tiny tiny bit of it <laughs> you know but the vast majority um of, of the cultural landscape and especially the the landscape of beauty is the same you know even when you get into quote unquote body positivity which is like very hot right now it's like Oh my God, we are so brave. We put a woman who is a size 12 in a bikini in our magazine. Can you believe us? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's great. That's smaller than the average woman <laughs> in this country. Um, and, and so I, I just think, you know, um, I, I just am torn. Like I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of half and half. I'm very, very like over the moon. Couldn't be happier with, um, how much better the the land, media landscape is that my kids get to grow up in than than the one that I did, but also we got so much more work to do. Well, it was really I loved reading your passage about these cultural touchstones because we're about the same age, and so I really identified. That's with, right. I'm with, the old person here. <laughs> with the uh, with the the films that you selected, even Clue, which was one of my favorites growing up. But <laughs> and how much in in our era where there was less to watch and less opportunity to to you know spread around and, and seek. Shows Shows elsewhere how much those those moments and those characters really defined could define who we are and so I'm wondering now that you're in the business now that you've had your show if you have a sense that there is any growing awareness that putting these shows on the air do affect these kids that much that we grew up with this not only do we grow up with it but we carry it in very much into our adult lives um you mean is there a growing awareness like at networks and studios exactly and, yep yeah uh, I I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say. I, I don't I, I'm not in all of those people's heads. I can tell you that at every meeting that I had about making this show, um, even all the preliminary meetings when we were just shopping the option around, 
Um, I said the word fat and the word abortion about 4,000 times in every meeting. Um, and and uh, all the meetings went well. You know what I mean? <laughs> we got many offers. Um, we got to actually make the show. Hulu and Warner Brothers were unbelievably supportive. We put um, an abortion in the pilot episode of the show, which was um, a, a really a moment that I'm really, really proud of. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard to say, like, of course, probably <laughs> everything is capitalism. And, you know, it, it I, I, there's there's I can be cynical about it and say, um, you know, it's it's clearly it's obviously becoming apparent to companies that um, women and people of color and marginalized people are a market share. But I do. I definitely, you know, everyone that I've worked with on on Shrill, um, all the executives and everyone at the network in the studio have been so excited to get to make this show and get to make a really, really diverse show um, that does that does have an impact on the world in, in whatever small way we do. Um, and that's been, you know, I, I do believe that there are people paying attention um in all of these industries, I, I, who want to who want to make a difference, who want to use their platform and their sphere to do something good. So obviously, I don't know. I don't know how much is capitalism and how much is um, ethics, but it, it it's been a really. I can just speak for myself and my own experience that it's been really a really good experience making that show. We've been talking to Lindy West. Her new book is The Witches Are Coming. Let's play a little scene from Shrill, which is a, a big hit on Hulu, just finished the second season. Addie Bryant playing a fictionalized version of Lindy West. Here it is. Hello. Um, I'm sorry. I just took this pregnancy test in your bathroom, and I believe that it's defective because it just gave me a very disturbing false positive. So I would love to do an exchange, please. Um, how is it defective? Um, it says that I'm pregnant and that's impossible because I've been taking the morning after pill. Oh, uh, do you weigh over 175 pounds? Yes. The morning after pill is only dose for women 175 pounds and under. What? But I, I, I've taken it before. Okay. It's supposed to be for emergencies only. I guess, I guess I'm just wondering why the pharmacist who's usually here when I'm here, the like... Irish hunk, like, why didn't he tell me that the morning after pill wouldn't work for me any of the last seven times that I've come here and bought it? Oh, that guy, that guy's very bad at his job. Okay, okay so you touched on a million things there. But, you know, you write, and people probably know about this, the hashtag shout your abortion, but you have a great chapter about abortion in, in which you talk about being upfront about getting abortion in 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 shrill, but also your perspective on abortion. Tell people. Oh, I you know um, I I live in Seattle. Um, you know I live in a in a deeply pro-choice city um, in a blue state, and um, so it's easy for me to talk about my abortion. You know I'm not taking a huge risk. Um, I'm not going to be ostracized by my family. Um, or my or my you know social circle and so a, a few years ago um i realized that i i hadn't that i never did talk about having had an abortion and i was i was talking to my friend amelia bono um and and she she was like mentioned that she had had an abortion recently and i was like oh i had one too we started talking about it and 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 started thinking critically about why we had never talked about it and why we didn't tell our family and our close 
you know, circle about this, you know, kind of important moment in our lives. Um, important or or unimportant. I mean, I think part of the the discourse that I'm I'm trying to establish on or you know that I'm trying to help get out there on abortion is that um every abortion is different and they don't all have to be um present you know the way that we see abortion presented on television and in media is generally as this melodramatic agonizing moment and the reality of how abortion functions in many many people's lives is that it's a it's a relief and people express relief and gratitude. Um, and so certainly for me um, and, and for Amelia, th- this was not a moment of melodrama and agony. Um, it was a moment of 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 relief and gratitude at being able to access a constitutional right to autonomy over our bodies and to be able to choose not to, you know, to to not be forced to become a parent. So we started talking about all of this stuff. You know, why are we caving to this stigma that neither of us believes in, you know, both we're both pro, loudly pro-choice people not talking about our own abortions. Why is that? So um, we sort of spontaneously um, started this hashtag, Shout Your Abortion, which Amelia has now turned into a full-fledged nonprofit that she runs. Um, and there's a there's a book of abortion stories that you should buy. It's incredible. It's called Shout Your Abortion. And, um, you know, the the sort of ethos behind this is, that when pro-choice people are afraid to talk about abortion and say the word abortion out loud, um, it creates this vacuum where the only people talking about abortion are anti-choice people who are not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth about abortion. They're they're filling that vacuum with propaganda and lies, and um, and and it's it creates this bigger problem where many, many people on the left, ostensibly pro-choice people, have no idea how to talk about abortion at all and don't really understand anything about abortion because we don't talk about it. So, um, you know, in my little sphere of influence, what I have is this platform as a writer. I've started to use that platform to to write about abortion as much as I can and just to speak candidly and 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 earnestly about my own experience um, and hopefully create a little bit of space and a feeling of safety for other people to tell the, their stories if they want to. Um, like I said, it's it's really safe for me to tell my story. Um, and that's not the case for everyone. And it's not compulsory that people that everyone needs to talk about their abortion. Of course not. But I do think that those of us who can and feel like we want to, the more that we do it, the more it changes that landscape. Because the reality is that uh, people... Are, ha- are having abortions all the time. People need abortion. Uh, people should not be forced to become parents if they don't want to. People own their own bodies. And anti-choice women are having abortions. Republican women are having abortions. Rural women are having abortions. And I don't. it's not a coincidence that uh, this imposed stigma has coincided with really, really aggressive attempts to roll back abortion access in this country. And so, um, again, my... My field is communication, and so I'm using that platform to try to create as much culture change as I can because I I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't be talking about this very important, vital freedom that affects every single person's life. Well, Lindy West, I'm disappointed that we didn't have time to discuss anything. Thank you.
West's latest book, Is the Witches Are Coming? Up next, Tim O'Brien, author of The Things They Carried, took his 17-year hiatus from writing. Now he's back with a new book. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're playing some of our favorite discussions. We pick things up with Tim O'Brien. After emerging from a 17-year hiatus from writing, he joined us to talk about his latest work. It's called Dad's Maybe. We think of you um, for these for the many great books you have written that have something to do in some in many cases with Vietnam and the war and being a soldier and and what that means. So this is a totally different thing for you to do. Where did this come from? Well, it came from having. Uh my first child at age 58, and the realization that when they began to know me, my two kids, when the second came along, they would know an old man, the guy you're looking at right now. And then it occurred to me that I wanted to leave behind for them what I wish my own dad had left for me, a little couple of love letters and some advice and stories about his life. So in a way, the book is a kind of memoir so that my two sons know me. Can you tell, one of your kids essentially named your book, I think we all know now. How did the uh, maybe get inserted into uh, Dad's maybe book? Well, I'd been writing over about 10 years uh, little vignettes, messages in a bottle. I'd put them into a drawer for the kids, thinking they would encounter them when I was dead. But instead, my 7-year-old youngest son, Tad, came into the room, saw the pages, looked at them, and said, is this going to be a book? And I said, I don't know. That books usually end up at the bottom of a trash can. They just aren't good enough. And he said, well, what if it is good enough? Will it be a book? I said, maybe. And then he said, well, you have to call it what it is. He said this very sternly. Call it your maybe book. And at first I rejected it, but then it occurred to me that my life, like everyone's life, is kind of a maybe life. Maybe there'll be tomorrow, maybe there won't be. Maybe my dreams will come true. Maybe they won't, or maybe I'll change my dreams. And when you get to be 73 years old, every hour is a kind of maybe. And it seemed appropriate to what the condition I was in and remain in, the father of two precious, beautiful, generous-spirited, decent kids, and to leave a kind of gift behind for them, and then I hope for other fathers and other sons. How yeah, this is probably, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. I was going to ask you how old your sons are now. Uh, 16 and 14. So you they know, are in the prickly teenage years, and uh, sometimes, you know, the stuff that the kids might like, think is really cool and neat at six or seven, in the teenage years, they're not so happy about it. Did you have to, like, run this by them? Yeah, I had to. One of the chapters is about my older boy being cut from a basketball team when he was in ninth grade. It was a tough chapter to write because he had lived and breathed basketball since the time he was seven years old. He could tell you the name of a Bulgarian point guard, retired for 40 years. (laughs) He just loved the game. He got good at it, just not good enough. And he was cut, and the doors, those teenage doors, just which all swung shut. He closed literally doors, wouldn't speak at the dinner table. I'd ask, are you okay? And he'd say, I'm fine. But he wasn't fine. He was hurting. He felt mortified, humiliated, wasn't hanging out anymore with his old friends he played it with, wouldn't go to basketball games. 
And one uh, evening, he came to me. I was lying on a couch, and he said, Dad, I probably wasn't good enough. And I said, probably not. And then he said, yeah, but I love you, Dad. Well, <laughs> what father on earth? I mean, putting an orange ball in a big hoop is meaningless next to those words from a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't come often enough. So out of catastrophe for him came some beautiful words. By the way, you should, I wish people were here to see the emotion on your face as you're even repeating them after the fact. But, you know, I have to say, for those of us who have read your stuff, and I'm assuming everybody has read one or two or more of the brilliant things you've not ended up at the bottom of a trash can with there, Tim O'Brien. You started writing these letters, what, 15 years ago, something like that? 17. Yeah, but even so, 17, even more so. I, I don't want to pry into your life. You look really healthy to me. I assume you were pretty healthy 17 years ago because you lasted those 17 years. And while we're used to mortality being a theme in a lot of your work, it is so omnipresent here. Is it just because you're saying to yourself as you state, I'm, I may not be here when my kid is 30 or my kids are 30, or is it this lifelong sense of your mortality that you're writing about. Do you understand what I mean? Well, yeah, I do, of course. It, it is lifelong. It goes back at least as far as Vietnam, when every step was a maybe step. I served in Quang Dai province, the most heavily mined area in all of Vietnam, and I'd say 85, 90% of our casualties came from just walking. Mm -hmm. Just step on it and you're dead. And every step, I'd look at the earth and think, is this it? Is this it? And that got infectious for me. I carried it home with me from Vietnam, where that maybeness remained with me in all kinds of different forms throughout the rest of my life and returned with a vengeance when I got old. But we all face it. We're all writing our maybe books full of maybe tomorrows and then another maybe tomorrow until the, our lives receive that final period. So it's not just specific to me. I think it's all of us. Okay, I have a confession to make, Tim O'Brien. When I first heard that you were writing this book about having your first child at, f at 58, I was, I was a little hostile because of the double standard. You know, a woman has her first kid at 42 or 44, and oh, my God, she's totally irresponsible because, you know, the kids are going to expose she dies, and the, the double standard between older men having babies mm -hmm. And older women having babies. Have you taken any grief about this on the book tour? <laughs> um, not yet. You're the first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's uh, my wife and I nearly split up over this issue yeah. before, before we were married. Um, she wanted children desperately, and I said, "Look, I'm I'm too old. I might resent changing diapers and resent losing my independence after 58 years." She desperately wanted, and we broke up, and we met in a Cambridge, Massachusetts a restaurant. It was called The Harvest. I don't know if it's, yes, oh, of it's course still it there. Is. is it still there? Yep. Yeah, it is. Oh, it's still and, there. Well, I'm glad, because that's where we reconciled <laughs> and worked out our differences. She wanted a nap, you know, normal family life, and I did. I had an alcoholic dad, and he was institutionalized a couple of times, and I grew up in a household full of tension and anger. And uh, I realized I, too, wanted what she wanted. Um, so, yeah, she's younger than, than I am, but she's 53 now. 
but she's not, you know, she's not 22. Yeah. Well, the, 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 somewhere in the book, you, you, you talked about one day your kids, one of your kids saying, if mom and dad got married in high school, uh, I'd be 50 now, says, <laughs> says right. your kid. I'd be almost dead, says the kid. Yeah, there's so. some things you don't want to imagine. Yeah. One, is, one is a 50-year-old you know, kid who's actually in eighth grade with a pot belly. <laughs> it's hard to put those two things together. You know, Tim O'Brien, at first I was a little confused when I'm looking at the uh, table of contents. There are a ton of chapters called homeschool, and I figured it was a typo. But essentially, <laughs> there's a lot of, and it's not homeschooling like the homeschooling we debate here. It's lessons to your kids. I want to focus on a couple of those homeschool chapters if I can. W- one that were you, I think there are 37 items. You list your outrages, outrage, and there are 37 of them. If I could summarize, it's a lot of it's about war hypocrisy. Is that is that a That's fair. fair statement? And give us the thrust. And by the way, I didn't serve in the military. I know you were drafted, but it, that was pre-lottery when you were drafted, right? That's when, that's when essentially the local draft board threw drafted, a, you. drafted you. They decided which people would go. What was, your, what was the primary thesis, the central thesis of the chapter? Well, the book is not just love letters to children. It is instead uh, at times some hard things I say to my kids about war. In this case, uh, the thrust of that chapter was if you support a war, go. Unless, of course, you only support a war to the extent that other people should kill and die. Go. If you're too old, take an apartment in Baghdad or whatever. But Put your body where your rhetoric is. It's very easy to support killing other people until you're immersed in it and you're doing it and not someone else. And you can hear all my hope, the outrage in my voice to this day to look at the television set, the Fox channel, when you're watching some bellicose guy who's sitting safely in a TV studio in Chicken Washington. And, it, 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 and it's not political, it's... It's the veteran inside of me, the person who has had to actually do these things. And um, that's something I want to transmit to my children. I want them to live a life of outrage and not just buy orthodoxy and not just buy whatever the going sales pitch might be, weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist, things like that. Use your own conscience, your own reading of history and the newspapers and make your own mind up, and don't take the easy route to things, which is usually this sort of the standard line of the day. By the way, there's a lot of humor in this book too. We're dealing with some of the heavier stuff. It's just all, it's a, it's a father who loves his kids, talking to his kids. But I'm going to stay on this for a minute. I, I was curious when I was reading that chapter, uh, that letter about the 37 outrages on that mm-hmm. theme. Do you remember when uh, Charlie Rangel was uh, a member of Congress and every year he would file a bill to reinstitute the draft? We mm-hmm. debated on the show and it was pretty clear to me, even though he never, it wasn't because he wanted the draft to go back into place. It was essentially because he wanted to understand it could be your son or daughter, not just the sons, not just the Tim O'Briens of the right. world kind of thing. Did you support that strategy on his I, part? You know, I, I, I changed radically. It's uh at one point, I was drafted. Uh, I went kicking and screaming. I was opposed to the war. I thought, why me? Um, you were thinking of leaving the country for a while, were you that not? great scene Very in the boat. So. Yeah. yeah I, I remember that. I thought so. Uh, I thought I was going to. Mm-hmm. But now I realized the justice in what Wrangell's proposing that, as it stands now, 
a very, very minute percentage of the American people are subject to going. They have to volunteer. I think it's a half of a percent of our population, something on that order. And uh, the wolf is not at the doors of America unless you want it to be. And that too makes it easy to be bellicose and belligerent and utter that word war. I'm for it at your Kiwanis Club or your PTA when the wolf's not there for your kid or for you. I had proposed at one point in this book that we erase from the dictionaries the word war and substitute killing people, including children. So if Congress were to declare war, they would have to declare their intent to kill people, including children. And you'd have to do it at your PTA as well. It's tongue-in-cheek. But I do think that the word war has now become a kind of euphemism, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, and it's a lot nastier than that. It's the voice of Tim O'Brien. His latest is Dad's Maybe Book. I, I read in one of the interviews uh, that you did about this book, though, that um, or maybe it wasn't about this book, but it was about talks that you've given over about, about Vietnam or about your experience and stuff, and how sometimes at the end of what maybe a very brutal but realistic look at war, you'll have somebody come up to you and say, I want to go out and join the Marines. So what's that about? Well, it happens occasionally. Um, I'll give, I'll, I'll tear up when I'm reading or I'll choke up or I'm talking about the experiences I did with you guys not long ago. But I'm an emotional person and I think I should be. And after choking up at the death of a soldier that I may or may not have killed years and years ago. A man came up to me, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, and said, boy, I respect your honesty. Thank you for doing that. And he gave me a big hug, turned away, and then turned back and said, you know, I've been thinking about joining the Marine Corps, and now I know I'm going to. And I'll, it, it shocks me that I think of myself as a peace writer, I display war thinking the responsibility that's nasty, let's be careful about doing it and do it only when we're pretty sure it's the right thing to do and the only thing to do. Well, that's it, the standard thing that most authors feel that your book is taken through the filter of the temperaments and the values and the personal history of your readers and things are, responses come that you may or may not have intended and this was one I didn't intend, but that's literature for you. We're talking to Tim O'Brien, who uh, hails from the Turkey capital of the world, which I was not aware of, I have to say, before. <laughs> Congratulations Thank on you. that, uh, Tim O'Brien. That'd be Worthington, correct? Well, it would be. Worthington. You know, I, I wonder, um, just a non-book question for a second, a political question. Um, there's a lot of debate now about whether generals who are upset, I mean, you've seen a couple of them. McRaven, McRaven wrote McRaven, the op-ed yeah, in the New York Times. and a little bit Mattis at that, Al Smith, the Catholic dinner in New York, criticizing the president a little bit that, that you know, they, they are they are supposed to respect the chain of command. They're supposed to be apolitical. Um, and that's what you hear some generals say. On the other hand, you hear people coming out now and saying we have to be critical. How do you see having served the role of, of generals in in political times when people are upset about whatever it is, whether it's the war in Iraq or whether it's a Syria thing? What should they do? Um, well, I Mattis is a, an, an exception to a rule. I really admired what he had to say, and I thought he he, he 
he spoke from his heart and not from the generalship perspective. When he said, I earned my spurs in war and our president earned his spurs from a letter from a doctor. A lot of veterans respond to that. It, not again, not really political. It's that the people making the wars aren't doing the war. There was a time when you know, Julius Caesar actually led the troops. He didn't just say, you go do it. And there was a humanity that came through Mattis's comments that seemed to me brand new to the world. I hadn't heard a general go quite that far, ever. Um, and there was, in Vietnam at least, there was a kind of uh, mockery of generals because they were in the rear, they were safe, they were designing ways for us to kill people, and, uh, but they weren't in it. And his, the humanity of what he said um, was what we felt in Vietnam. If they just come here for a while and spend three days out in the field walking through these minefields with us, maybe they would be a little less reluctant or a little less desirous of searching every tunnel we came to and doing the things that were they were silly kind of lethal commands that we knew in the ground wouldn't do anything except get us killed and um that i can remember so vividly mattis's words i was startled and then shocked that a man who had been a general was speaking so bluntly from his heart. So, uh, Tim O'Brien, have the two young men for whom you wrote this book read this book? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a book tour for the, la for the last week. So you they, don't want to know? They, well, they may have read it while I've been on this tour. I don't know. I asked my wife. I left home with the book lying on the floor beside the bed of my youngest kid. Unfortunately, it did not look like an opened book. <laughs> and uh, they know I'm a writer. They know they're in the book. They know I'm a but writer. They, uh, but they're, uh, they're, they're more interested in the latest uh, you know, Grand Theft Audio video yeah. or whatever it might be. You know, you didn't write, uh, you didn't, well, you were writing. You didn't publish for, what, a decade and a half? 17 years. Was that a conscious teaching, right? decision because you wanted to focus as much of your life on these young Boys and men. Sure. That was it. I decided above all else what was paramount in my life was to be a decent father. As I told you, my dad was an alcoholic. I'm not sure he even liked me, much less loved me. And yet, I, I guess that fed into my desire. Just, I can't be a good parent if I'm spending 12 hours a day at a computer and the other 12 hours worrying about writing. And... I had to be wholly present, so for 10 years, I quit. I had defined myself, a sense of self-esteem and my self-love, only by the books I had written. And that changed with the birth of my first son. Something became so much more important. These two precious little boys, I had to be a good father. And... Uh, I devoted to myself to it for all those years. You know, from having read the book, Tim O'Brien, I don't know you. I obviously know your work. You sound like a great father. Are you? Yes. You are? Yeah. Is that hard for you to you, – it wasn't hard for you to say. I, I thought you were going to say let them decide or but, – but you say that without any hesitation. It's because they say it to me. They say, thank God you're with us all the time. And you, 
take us to the places we want to go and you don't let us you know stay up all night which they would do otherwise <laughs> and they're happy in the morning and uh the most beautiful thing that probably has happened to me over the last year or so is i was on this tour and lonely in a in some motel room and i i called home and talked to the two boys and out of this teenage blue again came these words i love you mm. which <laughs> you have to live with a teenager to know how rare they are <laughs> you have to we both did at different well, times we both know. know we do yeah it is so. you're right you're right and you know the irony is and it's obvious to you you would not have had this relationship had you had these boys when you were 25 or 30 i would not have had the patience and yeah. I, I don't think i would have i think i might have as I said earlier, resented it. I was so used to my independence for all those years. And to give over to, to parenthood and to being a father uh, has been the joy of my life. It kind of rescued my life in a way. Tim O'Brien's latest book is the memoir, Dad's Maybe Book. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can catch us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. 